You heard earlier that there's no real concern about aluminum because it's such a small amount, and so it really shouldn't matter. But the kind of aluminum that we put into vaccines is a different kind of aluminum that we see environmentally. This is called a nanoparticle, and nanoparticles bind really tightly to the bacteria antigens, the virus antigens, the food protein antigens, and any other contaminants that are in the vaccines that we may not know about. And we know that the biochemical properties of nanoparticles is that they are capable of entering the brain. And so we have not evaluated the safety of the aluminum nanoparticle and its injection and where it goes when it gets into the body and whether it gets into the brain. Do vaccine ingredients belong in the brain? No. Do they get into the brain? No one has ever studied it. But animal studies using the same chemicals that are in vaccines that we give to children directly demonstrate that the vaccine ingredients do enter the brain. We are ignoring this information. There are scientists in Europe who've actually done studies on the aluminum nanoparticle and have shown that it can persist in the brain for years and decades. And so what we're seeing is a large outbreak of neurodevelopmental disabilities in adults, including Alzheimer's. And one of the main factors that they're finding in the brains of people with Alzheimer's is the aluminum nanoparticle that's directly related to the vaccines that we're giving. So we have never studied whether the aluminum that we're giving in vaccines gets into the brain, and we've never measured whether it stays in the brain and what it does if it does stay in the brain. But we do know that vaccines are supposed to cause inflammation in the body. But we have more than half of our children with chronic inflamed conditions. And we've never allowed ourselves to ask the question, if the vaccines cause inflammation acutely, do they continue to create inflammation chronically? We have one in five with neurodevelopmental disabilities, one in 10 with ADD and ADHD, one in 35 with autism, one in 11 with asthma, and one in 20 under the age of five with seizures. Autoimmune diseases are exponentially rising, and we are finding that the viruses and the bacteria that we're injecting into the body, along with the adjuvants, create something called molecular mimicry, which means the body sees those viruses thinking that it's foreign, but actually finds pieces of those viruses that match pieces of the self. And the immune system doesn't differentiate between what it's been told to reject and itself. So it will turn the immune system on itself, leading to an autoimmune condition. We know this about hepatitis B. We know it about the Gardasil vaccine. And we know it about the flu vaccine. And we continue to say unequivocally that the vaccines have been studied effectively. Welcome to the Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Saturday, May 20th, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, important clip that we've played more than once, Dr. Pilevsky, and that was from 2020, talking about, in a general sense, the nanoparticles, but everything he says in that is so wildly relevant 
to all, just every aspect of this just COVID-19 back injection direction and everything we're going to a lot of what we're going to get into today. The conversations about the blood brain barrier and, and all the different information there, the lack of study behind these things will blow your mind. All pushed under the, the guise that, you know, oh, it's an emergency that we have to rush in to do things we're not sure are safe for your safety. As the joke I've been telling since the beginning of this, because that's how dumb this is. I mean, you could always make an argument about how we try something that's maybe dangerous because we are in danger if that was the case, even though it wasn't. But then, of course, the one big difference was you would never force that on anybody. You would say, well, I've got this option. It might be dangerous, but it's just in case because we're in danger. But in case. But of course, they forced it on everybody. And it shows you that there's something much, much more nefarious going on here. Now, and by the way, the reason uh, I was a little bit delayed there in the beginning is it looks like locals isn't working. I'm, I'm kind of getting frustrated with what's going on over there. Uh, it, this is lim, lime, live stream limit has been reached. I don't even know what that means. So I guess no locals tonight, even though it apparently only shows 30 minutes of our stream. I don't know. I'm going to keep working with it. Everyone, I, when these platforms are trying to develop their streaming, I know how difficult that can be, but it's still frustrating. But we're going to have a really great conversation today. Focus on specifically the, as I framed in the title, the, the lipid nanoparticle spike protein design. Very important to understand that, this, you know, this wasn't, I mean, there's a lot of experimental parts, and you're going to see that even more clearly today, that every aspect of this thing was barely vetted out. Like, you you could talk about the 20 years of research is what they like to frame it in regard to the coronavirus vaccines. There's a lot of moving parts to what was going on in that time frame, and they've continued to fail. And ultimately, what they did was the same exact kind of stuff, but pulled in a, a few different things that had never really been tried, especially not together, and argued it was necessary because we were all going to die. And that's not even remotely what happened or what was actually happening. And throughout the process, all these things started to fall apart. And we're going to show you this and the specific nanoparticle, rather lipid nanoparticle spike protein combination. It, it's just, it's like I've been saying from the beginning of all of this, it certainly could just be a bunch of mistakes over and over and over just every single time. But it's kind of hard to see it that way. When you stand back and look at what, all the information we have and realize that almost everything that was done Interestingly enough, parallel my mind with what happened in East Palestine. It's like they chose all of the things that would make it the worst possible scenario. You know, I didn't even laugh at that, but it's just so crazy how clear this all is in retrospect, of course. And we're going to go through how dangerous those are. Specifically, one thing I just kind of stumbled into in, in research the in, in regard to the pseudouridines, which is the methyl pseudouridine, which is, is the mod RNA aspect of the it's, it's the modified RNA they're using. They're using methyl pseudouridine to modify this. And I'll go over that briefly again, which is because they, when they did that, it, it increased the efficacy. But of course, that along with lipid nanoparticles and everything they did to do that increased all the serious side effects, which weirdly enough was exactly the problem they kept stumbling into before. And I bring this up all the time. So why is it different? Clearly, it's not. Clearly, it's still dangerous and hurt. But all that mattered was that number, which even then didn't actually end up translating into real life, if that's even anything would actually happen. But ultimately, that in conjunction with the nanoparticle in general conversation is really interesting. It shows you they know they knew and know this stuff is dangerous or can be. That, and it all comes back to that benefits outweigh the risks screening bleed mantra that just never went away, even to this day. I'll show you another absurdity where they're claiming still, despite the evidence they're showing about myocarditis, that they still say the benefits outweigh the risks. And I'll show you what they're saying and then show you what they're arguing is happening and ask yourself if you think it outweighs whatever small benefit they're arguing is coming from that, even if they're accurate, but they're not. 
But even if they were, there's no way a 10-time increase in myocarditis, which is what they write, is somehow okay because COVID is dangerous. Even if it was, that still doesn't make sense, but it's not. But we're going to also talk about a really concerning development that we were We've been talking about on the, yeah, thank you, Burning in the chat, and, and one specifically, methyl pseudouridine. But to, to bring this back to something we talked about right in the beginning of all this, ferritin nanoparticles. Now, this specifically, it's just like we can talk about lipid nanoparticles. Now, these things are relatively benign in most sense. You're talking about a fat and, and you know, really just a particle that's that small, which is ultimately what's called that. But then, of course, when you insert different things into it and to do to to end up delivering information or our payload or to not harm the cells and its integration with the body becomes a little more different, but just the lipid, you know, ultimately not that problematic. But then when you do the studies and realize that when it ends up in the body, that it can actually cause certain problems, it, it's, it's all about the environment and, and what the, and the circumstances and what's ultimately happening. And so ferritin is a, a iron based protein to, I mean, hard, much more to explain in that. And even my, even my understanding is probably limited based on some of these experts in the topic, but ultimately it's just a protein. But we've talked about this in regard to how it's already been researched by the military, as usual, by the government, by NIH, in regard to using a ferritin-based nanoparticle platform to create injections that can quite literally control your brain. That's not hyperbole. We've gone over this 15 times on this platform. It's a Guardian article, in fact, from 2016, talking about the magneto injection and how it can literally control the brain and the movements of the things they're messing with, right down to actual um, uh, different animal species they were testing on. So I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's amazing to see how quickly this is progressing into the very same possibilities. Like even right now, I'm going to do another part about the, the payload discussion coming from the, the Langer Lieber research in regard to being able to not only bio you know, collect data, bio surveillance under the skin, as Noah Harari can tell you to tell, continues to tell you is where we're going and where we already are. But as well as the fact that we're talking about the delivery of therapeutics which is exactly the point about what this is, the idea of the lipid nanoparticle delivering the instructions, the mRNA instructions for the spike protein. Now, the way it works is that outer layer degrades and it releases the payload. That is the same technology. It's exactly the same thing. Now, my point has never been that that's some sort of revelatory point, except for those that may not know that, but more so that what else could be going on there? Of course, to certain people, that's conspiracy theory. How dare you ask a question about a logical thing that could be happening? Not to say that it is, because that would be irresponsible, but could it be? Yes. And same thing here. Ferritin nanoparticle injections and what that could be used to accomplish. And I'll go in to show you that the military direction on this, they've already tried to shoehorn this in with the COVID-19. A specific pan-coronavirus ferritin nanoparticle injection from the military. Weird how that didn't really get used. They just kind of shoved it aside and... Now it's coming back around, but totally not involved in the military. There's just a lot about this that's very disconcerting. Overall, the point is these things are dangerous. They always have been. They are still now. And they're all, I don't see a point that they won't be if they're just continuing the same direction. It's the same concept with the same lipid nanoparticles, the same mRNA, both of which have their own risks. And then the concept in the way that they're delivering this. It's all the same thing. Why your body then won't accidentally recognize what it's creating and then attack your your to and attack yourself? Molecular mimicry we're going to talk about again today, but also path, path, excuse me pathogenic priming. It's a little bit different, but then the idea ultimately that your body attacks itself. 
We've talked about this with coronaviruses specifically in a lot of different things. And a lot of what we're going to get into today shows you, I mean, my opinion, it seems quite hard to believe that this wasn't by design. So let's start off with something, just a couple of quick points I wanted to share that I think are important that I that we briefly touched on in the last show. That's actually what I kind of started with today was wanting to reiterate that lipid nanoparticle point that I think is really important and really it's kind of impossible to deny and flesh that out more. And then it just kind of developed into something a little more. And of course, the ferritin universal flu injection, which is kind of scaring me a little bit, especially if it's possibly already being used. No, no, we can't ask things like that because they would never lie to you, right? I'm not saying I know that for sure, but I don't know why we wouldn't ask that. But starting off, we just talked about this yesterday, and I really do think this is an incredible point for those that may not, you know, see it in a buried a three and a half hour show that in New York City, Children's Health Defense just reported this. They're now doing what was aggressively called conspiracy and dangerous misinformation like 10 seconds ago. New York is now going to track residents food purchases and place caps on meat. In certain public locations like restaurants and so on. But the point being is specifically a carbon footprint household food consumption tracker. Exactly like the World Economic Forum was talking about. Now, not that's not necessarily called conspiracy theory. It is actually in many circles that doesn't don't even realize what they're openly telling you they want to do. But it's the, it's the idea of the meat part that they're never going to physically actually stop you from eating. Well, yes, that's what they're doing. Maybe one step removed. But if they're limiting the amount of meat that can be put into grocery stores, isn't it the same difference? It's just it's just a game of perception. As I said, we were we called dangerous spreaders of misinfo when merely stating that this was a possibility. Like, don't forget, I actually should have brought this up, but I don't want to de- get derailed by trying to find it. There's actual conversations, actual like scientific study level publications, not a study, but a statement the scientific conversation some those get published on things like science.org and so on where they're talking about well like sort of like the moral bioenhancement statement i show you it's it's on a publication of studies but it's not necessarily a study it's more of a statement of scientific endeavor or direction and it says well shouldn't we think about creating a vaccine let's say where you can give people certain enzymes that make them not want to eat meat anymore we've seen these i've shown it on the show that's crazy in and of itself But then what if they decided because, oh, my God, we're going to die tomorrow if we don't stop the climate change illusion we've created? Well, why don't we just release this? Why wouldn't we do that in the thing we just gave everybody in the world? Because we've already decided the world's going to end if we don't do it. And we've already decided that if they if they know about it, they won't take it. And we know it's a moral imperative, so we should do it without them knowing. I mean, this gets crazy for people to wrap their minds around. But all the arguments are in place. Every one of them. They already decided Multiple discussions at high level, you know, I shouldn't say decided, but have stated that their opinion is that should they need to do this for the betterment of society and we will understand, well, it makes more sense to do it covertly. So why wouldn't this already be happening if that's the mindset? Well, because morals and, you know, integrity. Well, do they have that? Have they demonstrated that they have even a fraction of that in their <laughs> genetic makeup? Well, here we are, regardless of all of that hyper, hyper theorizing. Well, they're doing it in one step. Next, it'll be, well, if you have a, a, cap, a, a monitoring of your house, well, then th- that's going to play a factor. This is the world they're building or already have. This needs to be stopped, especially because people need to be able to make their own choices. That's what always comes down to. Always. Choice. 
Most things can like it, all the stuff we're talking about, as long as people are given a choice, it's something like the point that people coming out and saying that we shouldn't be allowed to take these injections. Well, I, I would technically agree with that. I think that's probably smart, but ultimately I would never infringe on your choice, even how, regardless of how poorly informed it was that you have a right to make that choice. And I have a right to try to give you the information. It's always about choice. Always. Now, another point that I wanted to include before we started, unfortunately, many of you might have seen already that Dr. Rashid Buttar passed away. Now, there's a lot of stuff flying around about this. Now, I'm not going to get into this too deep today because it's important that this is accurate, very much so, with how much this, you know, how contentious this was from the beginning. One of the earliest people standing up and saying stuff about this. Now, there's a lot that he said since then that I don't agree with. Regardless, as I said, your courage will be remembered. I, I, and that's because a lot of I do agree with, and I think he was way ahead on this. But also remember that it's courageous to stand up for what you believe in, even if you may be wrong. Obviously, the point is you wouldn't know that you were wrong. You believe in this. You're stating something. But to stand up and do anything at that time when it was that contentious, there's no benefit to that. And, and the, the bottom line is that ultimately he did so, and he put himself at risk. And now what ultimately happened is, as the story goes anyway, that he passed away, and and there's a lot flying around around what and why and so on. Now, ultimately, there was something recently he spoke up on a podcast where he he made the allegation that he felt he was poisoned, specifically with the the injection poisons, like the the spike protein, whatever, like a a heightened dose of what was in the injection. It's essentially what he said. Now, I can't verify that. That's his claim. And, and, you know, I, if there's more flying people, send me stuff, guys, if you find something. And I looked, and I can't confirm that's the case. So I don't feel like it's responsible to say that other than to say that was his opinion. And it's, it's interesting. And th- the information is, I believe, it's in these links that you can look at for yourself. Now, what I'm showing you here is an interview that I did with him in 2020. Why COVID-19 is not what you think. And it, it's just, it'll really blow your mind to listen to some of the things being discussed all the way back then. So check it out. Rest in peace, Dr. Bertar, because he really did it's just the courage it took to do that. You just can't get past it. I, I also want to include the one that was uh, put out by uh, the name is right in here from uh, Brandon from actually, that was not the right one. I fresh actually, actually update this. I think it was, I'll, I'll include the, the link to their, their Twitter account. They were sharing it today, but it was a, it was a group that invited me to do this it was a round table, which I was honored to be a part of this early 2020 with Dr. Butar and Dr. Mikovits, how your system is being used against you. So check these out if you'd like to watch these. They're important. It's important stuff. Oh, it's a transparent, transparent media, I think is what it's called. Oh, it's right there. It's right there. Colleagues at Transparent Media Tr- Truth. That's their account on Twitter if you want to check it out. Now here, by the way, was just the... See, now, it's, even this kind of people are already sort of misrepresenting this online, which, you know, it happens a lot. Everyone wants to be ahead of the story, and it's not really a story. I mean, other than, other than what might have happened if there's, this, you know, nefarious things there, which we shouldn't put, deny, like, or we should look into this rather the right way to say it is we shouldn't dismiss the ideas very possible but that they're saying that oh the last thing he did was this recent show and and this appears to be the very last thing that he posted he actually posted went live you can watch it for yourself 30, 29 minutes then he posted this hey guys i'm live now joining me making making the change the world is waiting for so you know interesting it's it's really sad to see this happen now on top of the allegations of poisoning and so on there there's you know apparently there was a tweet or a, 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 an image flying around I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute when we get into the myocarditis part of this where oh well, actually let me see if i can show you real quick it might be not this one right here well, where was that 
I thought I had it in here. In any case, I don't want to, I'll come back to it. But it was a, an image that somebody shared with me from online, which I can't really confirm. That's why I'm not really going to get into it too deep. But it's of somebody claiming they know that he said that he has myocarditis and all this different stuff. And that's what happened after that. Again, so much of this is completely unverified. But I wanted to let you know what seems to be flying around as the information I'm going to follow up in general. Now, the interesting part of this, and this is where we're going to get into it, is, oh, I think it's right here. There it is. For the record, he reached out to me, which I don't know who that is, because this is just an image circulating on, on Twitter, but saying that he had all the biomarkers with the mRNA jabs, which he didn't take. He was very outspoken about that, and he believed this was shedding. Now, on that note, we'll, we'll end up talking about that point again, because it's important to re- rehash that, but it'll be in conjunction or in, in line with the conversation we're having today. So considering all that, all we know, at least I can prove in this moment, is that he did pass away, at least according to the people of his team and the emails that went out from his platform. And that he claims he was poisoned before that, right after a CNN interview. Not that that necessarily has to be the reason. And then that he got pretty sick. And you can see him in the video. He looks very, very thin and unfortunate. And then I guess right before that, I guess he was talking about some kind of ayahuasca journey that he had taken or some sort of a journey like that. And how it kind of expanded his his kind of perspective on things. And so who knows, man? There's a lot of things that go on today and a lot of things that we're not supposed to talk about. So who knows? But. Sadly, the main point for me is that this person passed away and we need all the people we can get that are fighting for the truth. But let's start with the concept of the mod RNA, kind of a general overpoint of mod RNA, but more specifically the lipid nanoparticles and the spike protein and how this all works together. Very important. Yeah, uh, go ahead. And if you guys have, I'll, I'll get more into this. I'm in the chat saying I, the video is on a rumble video. It's just him saying it off the, off the cuff in an interview. So, I mean, I, I want to dig more into it before I start getting into this and releasing, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to it for sure. I want to know what happened. But we just went over this, specifically the mod RNA, lipid nanoparticles, and pseudouridines. And as we just said, it's N1 methyl pseudouridine specifically, but it's under the same umbrella. So if you want to watch the whole show, there it is. We have this recent overview that Scott did on our Substack, based off of my coverage on mod RNAs, and he gets into the difference between the two, which is important. Just if you want further understanding of that, because that's just a side point to the, or the kind of the overarching point of the inner spike protein lipid nanoparticle points. But it all has to do with mod RNA, because don't forget, the main point for me is that all of these, all of them, including the new universal dangerous ferritin one we're going to talk about, that's mod RNA. They do not have injections that use mRNA. That's a natural messenger RNA. And the point is that when they do that, every, all the studies I can see, it comes back that it just doesn't work properly. It's the low efficacy and so on. So, And that's actually right here where we're going to read. And this is why they do it. The critical contribution of pseudouridine to mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. This is from 2021. Now, it says the two, two novel vaccine platforms platforms important all this is platforms including the ferret nano platform discussion same thing it's weird how we just kind of stepped blindly into the platform direction despite all of our concerns and the real world evidence that it doesn't seem to be translating properly but you know who cares because they already decided that's what it's going to be that's their decision i'll jump ahead really quickly to make a point i'll make this at the end you might have seen this the new science of crispr how gene editing tech is about to change food children <laughs> and vaccines forever odd wouldn't they just say people i guess it's a focus on your kids but i said whether you like it or not now obviously that's not what it says you get the links right there you can look for yourself but what i said was well i guess the illusion and it is an illusion always has been of our involvement in these choices is just no longer necessary is this what you want 
right? Who, who's voting for this? Is this a world decision? If so, what countries are the point is clearly this has been a choice made above our pay grade and we don't have any influence over it. And the point is not the new science of how it's going to. The point is it's already happened. As this guy says, if they're going to be this upfront about it, it's happening sooner than later. And I said, or has already begun. This is where we are, guys. Like, it's not even on this. It's not even hidden. It's right on the surface. So in this conversation, realize this is what we're talking about. This is the direction that is already, we are already way down the path. Two novel vaccine platforms based on mRNA technology were developed in 2020. You know this, Pfizer, Moderna, and were the first ones presenting efficacies higher than 90%. Both consisted of N1-methylpseudouridine modified mRNA. That's the main point. Encoding the SARS-CoV-19 spike protein, and were delivered with a lipid nanoparticle formulation. The success of lipid nanoparticles was quickly hailed by many as the unsung hero of COVID mRNA vaccines. I'm going to show you, at least as far back as 2007, they were already talking about this as something that was already in use, which kind of seems strange to me, seeing as how they're like, hooray, this big new successful thing that no one's... It seems like an an odd framing. Now, I pointed out that the specific fatty lipid layer that was used in Charles Lieber's work in 2011 was merely the success moment that they used to successfully create the virus sized transistors and get them effectively inside of a body. I mean, since I bring it up, look at it. If you'd like to read this for yourself, 2011 is the point, right? So this is not the first time though. I'll show you in a minute that they already had had, they're already getting in, got into the lipid nanoparticle aspect of how this works a while ago, but this this is where it gets into specifically the things like this, like the the virus vector and using the lipid nanoparticle to insert this into the cellular machinery of your body without harming the body. Well, at least so they thought anyway. But it goes on to say the CVNCOV, which is a different version. That's a that's the CureVac mRNA vaccine that actually consisted of unmodified mRNA, and this is the point that it was formulated with the same lipid nanoparticle. Same thing. And here, here, this is the same. We'll get into this in a minute. The Acutus AL, ALC0315. However, its efficacy was only 48%. And of course, we're talking about way less than that in the reality of things and not talking about safety. But it says the striking difference in efficacy could be attributed to the presence of a critical RNA modification, specifically N1-methylpseudouridine, in the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines, but not in the... So the bottom line is they went with the one that and you'll re- if you, I, I think I went over it in this article specifically, but we're not going to go further today, that it increases the on-paper efficacy, but there's a lot of other risks that went along with it. But apparently those things are just side notes, and that's what concerns me about all of this. Either they didn't care because it was about the experiment and successfully achieving whatever this is with you know side effects be damned, or the harm and side effects were part of the plan. That's only two ways I can see this making sense. But as always, there could be something we're missing. But first of all, the remember, the, so when we're going to get into this, well, let me sure it wasn't something stand out. Okay, now. The idea being that these things were supposed to be more efficacious. But my point is that when you did this, it increases the risk, which, by the way, is exactly what ended up happening. So as you remember, in September 2022, they did a reevaluation of the phase three data. The secondary analysis. This is peer-reviewed, science direct, no retraction. 
far as I could tell, there's not even a concept of attraction here because this is sound as hell. And you look at it and you see it. There's no, there's a lot of this. I'll get into the mask part of it in a minute where they're pushing back and retracting papers from the editorial team at, against the wishes of the scientific, the scientists. And despite the peer review process that was already completed, it's all political. And that's never been a thing before COVID-19. And they're just acting like it's a normal thing. The point is they reevaluated their work. This, this one thing, my God, should be the end of the entire conversation. I don't know how anybody tries to pretend. This is why you won't hear this even brought up. Not by corporate media, not by all the screeching people online. I'd love to hear Ian Copeland make a comment about this and explain for us why the secondary analysis of their very clinical trials is not discussed. Because the point is, Pfizer, 36% higher risk of serious adverse events in the vaccine group compared to placebo. 36%. <laughs> So obviously not 90% efficacious, obviously not. Well, depending on what you claim is the efficacy you're looking for, that's a big, a big point. Maybe, maybe the efficacy is how much it hurts you. Sort of a facetious joke, but who knows? The point is that this is dangerous. This is hurting people. And they knew this based on everything we can now see. It's all in their own data. So the first thing that stood out to me before we go further was an interesting remind. I had a memory about this. What well, 36%, where have I heard that before? So on a quick side note, let's remember the Pentagon study from, from, I think it was, I got it right here, 2020, uh, January, 2020. This is just the health children's health defense article about it. Flu shot raises risk of coronavirus by 36%. And as well as other illnesses, there's, that's, there's multiple points in this study that show you that the injection just increases your risk of other things. But specifically, specifically before all of this influenza vaccine and what they called vir virus interference. We've done a lot of points on this, but I want to felt it was a good time to reiterate this because nobody seems to be talking about this. The, the idea that the mass, it, the, any of these countries that got massive uptake of flu injections right before this had exponentially worse situations. And that's pretty ubiquitous across the field. Now, one thing it says, first of all, recently published studies have described the phenomenon of vaccine associated virus interference. That is, Vaccinated individuals may be at increased risk for other respiratory viruses because they do not receive the nonspecific immunity associated with natural infection. So there's two things to take from that. One, they're very aware natural infection is better, always has been, always will be, because you don't just get one stop. It's, 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 you know, it's funny. It, in my, the analogy that comes to mind, it's like when they tried to per, like make Marinol. They take a perfect symbiote, like a symbiosis. What is the idea of the, of the entourage effect and how a plant, the cannabis plant is an amazing miracle that can that it's, and this isn't my opinion about some, like I smoke cannabis. So I, the point is scientifically speaking, you can look this up. The idea of what it does together, even CNN back in the day did an entire focus on this, where it actually creates a situation where your body maximizes its own ability to heal itself. And that's when it's all, I mean, I'm not talking about smoking. I'm talking about taking the plant and making a shake, eating it and taking in all of its properties you can have a, it, it, it increases your immune system, increases, it, it's very beneficial to you. Now, what, when you take something like pluck out one of the chemicals that you want to make into a pill and then give it to people, do you remember what happened? It hurt a lot of people. That's why you don't see it anymore. They tried to put this out and it, people were getting sick and they were having weird side effects. Gee, I wonder why. That's the point. They're trying to force this in in a way that gives you this one isolate. And even we're talking about the COVID injections. Don't forget 
that they give you this weird thing that's supposed to only be in your muscle, but ends up in your bloodstream. We'll go over that again today, circulating massive spike proteins in your body. And all it really does is actually hurt you. It doesn't create mucosal immunity. There's no way, as Dr. Bhakti has repeatedly pointed out, that can even accomplish that, which means they knew, they knew, because they understand the science that they aren't even capable of doing that, which I'll get into again, Fauci's cell article that basically explains that, that we failed and we'll do it better next time, even though they're still doing the same thing right now with the same shots still, because that makes sense. But the point is, receive nonspecific immunity associated with natural infection. So they know this is happening. They don't care. Here's the crux of the point. Examining non-influenza viruses specifically, the odds of both coronavirus in a general category, not just SARS-CoV-2, because at this point they weren't even addressing this, even though you can prove at this point that they were aware of it, which is interesting. But the point is that it's just a general category and human metanumavirus in vaccinated individuals were significantly higher when compared to unvaccinated. So, 1.36 versus 1.51, respectively. Not versus, but respectively. So that means a 36% increase in all coronavirus risk by taking influenza injections and a 51% increase in human metanumavirus in all people that took the injections. Period. There's no debate here. You guys have all likely seen this because we've talked about it. A lot of people have. Now, the main point here, I just, I look, this isn't anything. This just means they compared it to nothing which is a weird way to put that. I thought that was like an anomaly, like some non-virus they couldn't identify. But the point here for me, oh wait, was that the right one? Oh no, that's this one. No pathogen detected. So actually this was interesting. I don't know what this, I couldn't, what non-influenza virus, it just seems like a catch-all for something else, but it's still an increase. But this was coronavirus right here, just so you can see it. And human metanumavirus. Okay, it's very clear. And then if you want to read more, just writing, writing it out, that's, this was the RFK Jr. coverage of the same thing. What I found interesting, now, first of all, just don't miss the, ob- there's no, that's the point right there. If you took a shot that increases your risk of coronavirus right before they tell you is an outbreak of coronavirus, that seems like a relevant point, doesn't it? And then you combine that with the combination of flu and pneumonia with whatever they were calling this. You combine that with the nursing home and the basically forced death with remdesivir and, uh, um, I'm forgetting the one from the UK now. Uh, give me in the chat. Remind me of the name. Medazolam. That's what it was. As well as, as numerous other things. The false PCR test. I mean, just like Danny Rancourt points out, it's pretty easy to see that should they have wanted to, they could have made this up out of thin air. And then after that, called the side effects and the vaccine injuries and death, what, what they're calling COVID and calling whatever they're dealing with that long COVID and whatever else. The bottom line is, Increased risk is very clear, and they hid that from you. They lied about it. But on top of that, what, what's what's human pneumovirus or metanumovirus? Well, it says it's a common respiratory virus that causes upper and lower respiratory diseases in people of all ages, especially children, especially people with weakened immune systems. So you gave them a shot that increases their risk of illness from a respiratory virus, as well as just all coronaviruses to a lesser degree, but especially people with weakened immune systems. So then, And then you gave them a shot that verifiably dysregulates their immune system into the ground. And then a lot of them are catching what? RSV? Oh, that's right. It was discovered in 2001 that it's a member of the pneumovirus family along with the respiratory synactical virus. Oh, look at that. So not only do we know that you can increase one of the possible increased risks, as we showed you in their own documentation was RSV. It turns out that they gave them something right before the injection that has a small risk of RSV that increased their risk of RSV. What do you know? 
I mean, guys, this is not even debatable. This is the act. This is information that you can't deny prior to this and even during it that shows you that there is something to be said about what they did and other repackaging what they're causing as something new and selling it and repackaging it and doing the same thing. That's this is unbelievable to me how easy and obvious this is. But so here we are, a 51% increase of a common respiratory virus, and now people then exploded with a respiratory virus that actually turned out to be common and less than the flu. So could this not have been that? Certainly could have been. But let's talk about the main point that I came across that I think is really important. And this is, I'll show you the title when we're done, actually, so I can just say that this is the conclusion. There's a whole bunch ahead of it. Nanotechnology has significantly contributed toward the realization of targeted and controlled delivery of therapeutics. Now, again, that's the ultimate point about what this is doing in delivering the instructions for the spike protein, right? I want people to ask whether or not there could be more going on here. More of a delayed release with something else. I mean, why are they hiding? Why do they try to hide everything for 75 years? I mean, that's again, it's just so silly how ridiculously suspicious all of this is. It says certain materials have been claimed to exhibit biocompatibility, but the others that have been developed and are being used showing toxicity and hence proved inappropriate for in vivo applications. For example, so we're clear on the way language works. What we're about to say is what they just discussed. That certain materials exhibit biocompatibility, but the others that have been developed and are being used showing toxicity and hence proved inappropriate for applications in your body. For example, cationic lipid-based nanostructures are found to activate the immune system, which is not the what they're wanting. That's why, again, we went over these, the other discussion. The mod RNA had a much, had a much, much, much reduced immune reaction, which is what they were striving for. That's why they used it. In this case, like you don't want to get, the point is the only thing you want in, engaging with your immune system is the spike protein the body responds to and trains it to fight when it comes again later. That's the whole narrative anyway. So if you're giving somebody a cationic lipid-based nanostructure and it creates an immune response, that's likely one of the things we're seeing that are hurting people. But it says these are also associated, specifically this cationic lipid-based nanostructure, with some technological issues such as stability, reproducibility, low drug loading, encapsulation, and uncontrolled drug leaching problems. Okay, that sounds terrible. So the reality being is that's one, again, in, uh, let me finish real quick. Polymeric systems were then developed and evaluated, but were then, were, but they were also associated with similar types of limitations. You know what the polymer-based polymeric systems were? That's the polyethylene glycol used in this to effectively stop one of these problems, or so they thought. Similarly, natural polymers elicited unwanted immune reactions and also showed a batch-to-batch batch inconsistency. Weren't we just talking about that? Peter McCullough literally just posted something about the inconsistency of lots and how some of them are more dangerous. We're staring at the reality. It's right in their own information. Okay, so the main point is the cationic lipid-based nanostructure. That's what they're using right now. Despite this study, in 2020, February 2020, nanoscale self-assembly for therapeutic delivery. So in 2020, they were telling you, these ones aren't going to work. They're studying them, but these ones have problems in the body and everything else. To the point, make sure I have something here I want to look at. Yeah, a lot of it's about self-assembly, nanotubes and nanostructures and all that. The point, though, is that so they basically used polyethylene glycol to offset this or let, allow it to not degrade and cause the problems. But cationic lipids 
activate the immune system, have all the problems they listed off, stability, which is a problem, right? That's one of the things they're discussing. Well, it's important to understand this is not hard to, to prove. The core of lipid nanoparticles contains mRNA and ionized cationic lipid. This is the COVID-19 vaccines, May 2021. So just think about how ridiculous that is. So ask yourself why they're using this when they knew this was the one that was causing more problems. Well, they, I'm going to show you. I think they argued, well, we'll use polyethylene glycol to, to offset that. But that has its own problems. And I'll get into that as well. So it just seems like this is just a jumping from one problem to the next experimentation on the entire population under all under the guise that we're in so much danger that this is, makes it OK, even though we now proved that that's not the case incredible to me so let's talk about nanoparticles in general this was recently shared with me after uh, this it says exio ex, uh, exocytosis is involved in the vital bi biological processes such as organizing membrane proteins transporters ion channels and so on and lipids excretion of essential molecules and repairing the cm now what here's what it says after that process lipid nanoparticles in general oh, excuse me i should nanoparticles in general have been shown to acquire the ability to cross critical in vivo barriers in your body, such as the blood-brain barrier, exactly like Dr. Pilevsky was just talking about in the beginning, and cause unexpected cytotoxicity. Fantastic. So they know about this. Exosomes carrying inhaled nanoparticles out of, uh, out, out of, L LV uh, uh, what was that again? He's pronouncing these out loud when you're reading them. Alveolar. Relating to the LV, give me give me some phonic spelling in the chat. <laughs> the let me do this. I know this word too. It's weird. I've, this is when you try to alveolar. Av alveolar. Interesting. The alveolar cells and disseminating them into the systemic circulation have also been shown to induce systemic immune responses and subsequent inflammation. That's one of the big points about the inflammation here, which they knew about. This further emphasizes the role of nanoparticles, exocytosis in their potential toxicity in the human body. Now, we've talked about this a long time ago, right? At the beginning of all this. It was an NIH study as well, just the general risks of nanoparticles. Cancer, all sorts of things. But it's a very broad category. All sorts of different concepts. I think that was it in this one. Thank you. I forget who shared this with me. I was going to give him a shout out, but I forget. Remember now off the top of my head. 2017, cellular uptake of nanoparticles. This is a problem, especially if they're adding all these new things to kind of make this not be a problem as, as they see it. But so we understand this. And this is the same concept in regard to the virus size transistor conversation, right? 2011, the size of what we're told is a virus. That's, this is, I mean, here's the breakdown. Like, think about this and what, as they try to compare this to things that are gigantic in, in, in uh, relation. Scientists have not unanimously settled on a precise definition of nanomaterials. Now, I mean, this is a, uh, Where's the date again? That's not relevant. But it says, but agree that they are partially characterized by their tiny size measured in nanometers. A nanometer is one millionth of a millimeter. Think about that. Approximately 100,000 times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. 100,000 times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. That's what we're talking about here in 2011. A transistor, an actual nanotechnology bot sort of concept. 
the size of 100,000 times smaller than the diameter of a hair. That's crazy. And that is smart dust, guys. That's been around for as long, for a lot longer than we understand. So ask yourself how this is not in the conversation today. You're telling me they're not using this stuff? I mean, I've, I've gone deep on this very point of the virus size transistor and what it means. And I've also constantly pointed out that the main reason this succeeded was specifically about the hairpin nanowire with a fatty lipid layer. Again, I'll go into how that was around before this, but this was the big success. And that all of this was making the main point that, well, when things are as small as this, well, they can behave just like biology. You wouldn't even know the difference. So I've all, often posited the point, just putting it out as a question. Could this not be what we're dealing with? With how Charles Lieber was weirdly tied up in this in the beginning and shuttled away and seemingly never stopped his research. 2023, he just put out a recent one that is literally about the extension of the same work about biosurveillance under your body. I did a whole show on that recently. But my point again is think about how small that is. And what they try to tell you is the cutting edge technology. You could literally have these inside, inside of ejections and you wouldn't even know. So, 2021, safe nanoparticles. Are we there yet? Now, this is going to blow your mind because this is in the middle of what the pandemic and what they tell, they tell us was the big pandemic. So, just so, that, so you're clear, what that means is, as, as we pointed out the, the Moderna information, right, that in January 11th, 2020, they got the genetic sequence. Two days later, they had already made mRNA to one two seven three, and we've shown you many times that at this point, even to the Chinese CDC's own test uh, testimony, they had not isolated it. I still argue they never did, based on Koch's postulates. Different conversation. The bottom line is that they never needed it. It was all genetic sequence. So two days they did this. So my point is, in twenty twenty one. They had already made injections that had already been put in people's bodies by this time. Because right here, you can see that by, what, March? No, is that here, right? Actually, right here. March 16th, they had already injected the first person in their phase one trial. So, ask yourself how it makes sense with what we're about to read. Oh, that's the wrong one, right here. That if they're asking this, and you'll see the answers, they don't even know for sure. How do you make sense of that? Why were they using something that they didn't even know was safe in 2021? Well, because of the argument that we were all in danger and we couldn't. COVID's so dangerous, we're going to try things that aren't safe, possibly. That makes sense. Well, here's what it says. Nanoscale-sized particles or nanoparticles have emerged as a promising tools with broad applications in drug delivery, diagnostics, cosmetics, and several other biological and non-biological areas. These advances lead to questions about nanoparticle safety. Despite considerable efforts to understand the toxicity and safety of these nanoparticles, many of these questions are not yet fully answered. As this is being written, they're dumping, they're putting this in the arms of adolescents. Now, we're going to get into specifics in this. Now, actually, I, I want to come back to this. We'll, uh, actually, no, that's right. I, we'll do this first. But the point is the polymer-based nanoparticles, that includes polyethylene glycol. What it says here is polymeric nanoparticles are used widely as drug carriers for controlled and sustained release. So think about that in the context of why PEG is involved at all, other than the argument that it somehow stabilizes this. That's adding to the concept of long-term controlled and sustained release. If it's not supposed to be control or rather sustained release, if we're talking about the delivery of mRNA instructions one time, as we should all know by now, that's not what's happening. The, their own data is showing that now. 
But going on to just really quickly, the point is to get into lipid right here, lipid-based nanoparticles. But here's another one they include, carbon-based nanoparticles. Carbon-based nanoparticles are being increasingly used in various biomedical applications, such as drug delivery. That's interesting. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Even the idea of like carbon nanotubes, you know, things like graphene oxide, which is not necessarily the same thing, but those are fake news in any construct or any conversation today. But here they are telling us that they're used in many different applications. Now, I know that's not carbon-based nanoparticles are not necessarily graphene oxide. But what's interesting is that this is something that is a direction that most people don't even realize is happening. And that's kind of the main point that I get into with a lot of this today. This is not about tomorrow. This is about two years ago, a decade ago. It's already been happening before we even know it. Now, it's a strong candidates for various applications in biomedical fields, such as drug and gene delivery. However, the safety of carbon-based nanoparticles is still questionable as they have been shown to be toxic to healthy tissues following chronic exposure. Something to remember. Now, lipid-based nanoparticles. One of the most commonly used drug delivery systems with, this, with several currently FDA-approved formulations in use. So this is my point first. 2021. 2021, these things weren't approved. So, so how is it, or what are we talking about here? And where are these other approved lipid nanoparticle discussions? I'm not saying that it's that big revelatory point to realize that they had them, but I'm just trying to show you that the way this is covered is very dishonest. Clearly, this has been used out there, whether we know it or not, despite how we know there are dangers. Now, ask yourself this. If they're already using lipid-based nanoparticles in other directions before there was an emergency, what were they using to justify the risk then? Apparently, they just hope you didn't even know about it and didn't care. Because the point is, these things do have the risk. We're going to show you right now, as we are, in fact, we already just did. And yet the argument, as always, was because COVID is dangerous. Well, clearly they didn't care before we knew this was happening. Now, it says the conjunction of polymers, that's what we just pointed at, such as polyethylene glycol, PEG, as James Lyons Weiler, PhD, was screaming about long before we ever got here, and he was still right to this day, or pegylation of liposomes, which is what we're talking about, and the use of saturated high-phase transition lipids resulted in the generation of sterically stabilized liposomes or stealth liposomes which i'm going to look into i didn't have time to dive into that deeply but so this is my point so we're, we're at another point now where we're not just talking about fatty lipids we're talking about something that is modified altered not organic as much as they wanted to pretend oh it's just fat and water and stuff and and natural mrna nope nope actually not at all it's modified rna with methyl pseudouridines and you know it's all genetically modified and now we have the fatty thing that's supposed to be just fat lipids. Nope, now you've got polyethylene glycol around it to create this to make sure. But it says with prolonged half-life and increased stability. That was the whole point. The long systemic circulation time of stealth liposomes allows for altered biodistribution and greater accumulation in the solid tumors compared to conventional formulations. Among their advantages, liposomes and other lipid-based nanoparticles have been shown to have the least toxic effects. Oh, great. So even based on their, the least toxic clearly implies that it's also toxic, but less toxic. This is the least dangerous one of all of them. <laughs> now, if they told you that, they market it that way, would you want it? This one will kill you the least, the least likely. You know, it's just, it's bottom line is that knowing these things have risk. There should have never been a time where this was forced on anybody, but we all know that. Next part says the conjunction of polysaccharides was also shown to enhance the accumulation of nanoparticles in the brain, liver, and spleen. 
Well, look at that. Isn't that exactly the locations where we found the most buildup of the lipid nanoparticles, according to Pfizer's own research, most specifically the liver and the spleen? Well, it just continues to show you that this is what was happening. And they knew it based on their own science. And then it happened in your body and they just didn't tell anybody, which correlated to their toxicity in these organs. Exactly the point. Pfizer's own data showed you the lipid nanoparticles could specifically concentrated in the spleen and the liver. And as this study's telling you from NCBI, the National the Library, the NIH, it correlates to the toxicity in those organs. We already know this, though, but they're still denying this stuff. Now, it says, on the other hand, modification of nanoparticle surface properties using different coating materials like PEG can be used to reduce that potential toxicity. So what it shows you is when they added the polyethylene glycol, they're well aware of the risk. One of the reasons they added it was to cre- make sure it could get there, that it, may- it wouldn't break down, which also has its own very serious risks we just showed you, but also that they knew that this was toxic. And so adding the PEG, hopefully, reduce some of that potential toxicity. But PEG itself already has its own problems. Polyethylene glycol has been shown to reduce the toxicity of nanoparticles by altering their interactions with proteins. However, it should be noted that increasing the amount of pegylation may alter nanoparticle cellular uptake and their efficacy as a drug delivery system. So there's the, the tight wire they're walking. It just shows you how clearly this is such an experiment. Right. So as they increase the peg to make this less toxic and maybe get there, well, it reduces the ability to actually deliver the the payload. So they have to play this tightrope. Right. And the point was that they're playing with this in real time in your bodies and we're watching that fall out. Lastly, it says most of the nanoparticles approved or currently in clinical trials are soft nanoparticles, including lipid based. Among the strategies employed to reduce the toxicity of those nanoparticles, surface coating using polyethylene glycol is the most commonly used method. Interesting. So they've been doing this quite frequently, apparently, and this doesn't take any concern for the actual obvious. And I'll show you from their own documentation, the anaphylaxic risk of having PEG in the injection. Now, they knew this, and they said, yes, this could be potentially a risk, that people can get anaphylaxic shock from having this, as well as a lot of other things, and then went on to force it on people. All on the record. However, even those nanoparticles approved for clinical use may still develop toxicity. Yep. The best example is the liposomal formulation of doxorubicin. It's a drug, doxal. Now, it says, which showed efficacy in the treatment of recruitment breast, uh, uh, recurrent breast cancer. So the point is, they've already done this. They've already used liponanoparticles to encapsulate this drug delivery, the same point we're talking about. Now, it says, has been associated with the development of skin disorders known as hand-foot syndrome. That's what happened when they tried this time. And recent studies reported that patients have developed a, a cutaneous uh, squamous cell carcinoma following the, a repetitive treatment with pegylated liposomal formulation carcinoma being a cancer arising in the epithelial tissue of the skin. Okay, so what they're saying is, well, they tried this before with this drug to deliver the payload using lipid nanoparticles with PEG. Well, it caused a problem. They got hand and foot syndrome. But it says it is not clear, though, if these toxicities are related to the drug, to the liposomal carriers, or both. Well, I think we're beginning to see the reality is that this happened. These, these problems are also happening right now. So it clearly has to do with, well, the drug themselves they give people are probably dangerous in their own right, but the point is about the, the process, which we're seeing in real time right now, and we're seeing it again here. So again, you can see a record that they knew this and either thought they could fix it or didn't care. 
while general and, and all of it happened in your body. While generally considered non-toxic, the use of PEG has raised concerns. The development of antibodies and the immune response to PEG. So first of all, don't forget the development of antibodies. That is where we get into the idea of what James Lyons Weiler was talking about in regard to pathogenic priming. Your body is recognizing this as a problem. And then you and then ultimately when you it creates your body begins to hurt itself is the bottom line. And then the immune response to PEG has been observed clinically, but further research is needed. Guess what didn't happen? Nonetheless, these findings highlight the urgent need for studies assessing the long-term effect and toxicity of treatments with nanoparticles. Guess what didn't happen? Or at the very least, they said, yes, we need more research to make sure these aren't dead, dangerous. And then it was 2021. They were already being injected in half the world. So it didn't matter. It is possible that a complete safety profile of all nanoparticles may never be achieved and that unforeseen potential toxicities may not appear until the nanoparticle products are in the market and used in patient therapies. <laughs> well, wasn't that prescient? It's exactly what's happening. Now, in a conclusion, it says current data on the toxicity of nanoparticles in mammalian cells in your body and tissues suggest that studies are needed to focus on gaining additional insights underlying their toxicity. So the point being, they know there's toxic, toxic toxicity. They know it's there and they need more research to find out how serious that is, as well as developing strategies to minimize and prevent the toxicity. All they did was, oh, let's just pack it in some polyethylene glycol. That'll work. Further dissolution of nanoparticles can have a major effect on their toxicity and soluble nanoparticles appear to be toxic compared to insoluble. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so fatty lipids are soluble. Right. Or, I mean, arguably, like the point would be that something like something that would break down in your body. Well, that's the whole point of these. Right. Is that they do. They, that's how this works is that there's a time degradation. So it releases the payload. OK, so what they're telling you is something that is designed to do that. Well, it appears to be toxic can more so toxic compared to ones that don't. How many more of these do we need to see? How many aspects of this? It seems like they chose the toxic version just to be able to effectively achieve the test result. The study, the experimental direction. What are we trying to achieve? The delivery using a platform with the mRNA and the nanoparticle direction. Who cares if it hurts people? Future work also should focus on the fate of nanoparticles in biological systems and how organisms react to the long-term exposure of nanoparticles. That's why we don't have long-term studies on any of this. That's why they didn't study these things independently. They studied them as one injection, which is one of the main points of how they hid themselves from this danger. Finally, it is important to acknowledge the difficulty in identifying effective strategies to produce safer nanoparticles until a comprehensive understanding of the toxicology status of existing nanoparticles is, nanoparticles is completed. Yeah, they didn't care about that because it was already being put in people's arms when they wrote this. 2020. 2021, excuse me. Okay, well, here's the next one. This is 20, 2007. Just to quickly show you how far back this went, nanoparticles in modern, modern medicine, 2007. As it says, oh, wait a minute. That's strange. Oh, it's right there. That was the only part I was looking for. Nanoparticles in drug, drug and gene delivery. And it says, among the different application areas of nanoparticles, drug delivery is one of the most advanced in 2007. This is large part due to the success of polymer, like PEG, and liposome-based drug delivery systems, many of which are in clinical use today. <laughs> what? How's that? 
long before we'd even tested these things? Well, how does that even make sense? doesn't even matter, it seems. But the point is just to show you that this goes far way back. This is 2007, 2011. He successfully used that research to create virus-sized transistors and get them into people's bodies. Very alarming. But the point about PEG is important to understand. All these different aspects. Polyethylene glycol is a cause of anaphylaxis to Pfizer mRNA COVID shots. Right there, plain as day. The point is simple, that this is causing people to be hurt in some ways. And then on top of it, it's adding another layer of risk. But here, you can check out the interview I did with James Lyons-Weiler. Peg, and the, well, I forget what te- TEG stood for uh, off the top of my head, but polyethylene glycol, TEG, and the known dangers of the COVID vaccines. March 3rd, 2021. You know, watch this stuff. It goes back a long way. But here is one of the studies we showed from 2021. The, the mRNA lipid nanoparticle platforms, lipid nanoparticle component used in preclinical vaccine studies is highly inflammatory. <laughs> this, is, this is on cell.com. Highly inflammatory. This one's interesting, by the way. The lipid nanoparticles activate multiple inflammatory pathways and induce interleukin-1b and interleukin-6. We were just talking about that. And the, the lipid nanoparticles could be responsible for side effects. They just don't care, guys. They just dismiss the stuff that shows you exactly what's going on. This is exactly what the previous work before this was saying would happen. It says, here we present evidence that the Acutas, Acutas, that's the company we're going to show you in a minute, the Acutas is lipid nanoparticles used in preclinical nucleoside-modified mRNA vaccines. That's the one we just pointed at. That is the N1-methyl-pseudouridine-modified RNA are highly inflammatory in mice, highly. Intradermal and intramuscular injections of these lipid nanoparticles led to rapid and robust inflammatory responses. Why don't, I mean, think, so right now, if they're using eight mice studies to tell you these things are safe, why don't we care that these mice were riddled with inflammatory problems when given just the lipid nanoparticles? It says it's characterized by massive neutrophil infiltration, activation of diverse inflammatory pathways, and production of various inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. Resulted in high mortality rate. The mRNA lipid nanoparticle platform's potency in supporting the induction of adaptive immune responses and the observed side effects may stem from the lipid nanoparticle's highly inflammatory nature. And then nobody cared after that think that was in this one i mean it's just so incredibly ridiculous that you could have the pre-existing science the information telling you what we think is going to happen then you can have a study happening during the, the the release without more safety studies and going look it looks like that's happening and still that gets dismissed so on a, one quick deviation i wanted to point this out again since we covered this in the past here's pfizer's released 2022 which is an odd time for that pfizer enters an agreement with acutas therapeutics for the lipid nanoparticle delivery system Okay, well, that's 2022. What was happening before that? Right? There was another one we, I looked into that had another, another company that was 2021. But even still, this was getting given to people even in trials in 2020. Now, on top of that, there's a whole conversation that should be flushed out, and people have already, about the obvious criminality between all, multiple companies, by the way, but Pfizer and Moderna specifically for this same exact research that's supposed to be patented by other people. It's just very strange how they just kind of use the same things. But the point was, what was being used before this? Well, this is where this conversation came from when people discovered the reports that were saying lipid nanoparticles, not for human use. But here's how this broke down. Because it was a little different than what we thought. 
These were the two specific versions that are used in the injections. You can see them right here under Comirnaty. ALC0315 and ALC0159, lipid component. You can see PEG right there, polyethylene glycol. So what's interesting is that the parliament in Europe spoke up and said, well, according to these product information supplied by the EMA, two of the main components in Comirnaty, which I just listed, the ALCs, it says Echelon, the manufacturer of these nanoparticles, specifies that they are, quote, for research only and not for human use. Administering a vaccine, particularly to children, which contains unauthorized ex- uh, ingredients, is illegal, dangerous, and unethical. So they ask these questions, which it seems nobody ever followed up on them. They've updated this as of January 5th. But it, the main point was what they argued. Echelon Biosciences, which, by the way, this page is now deleted, which says a lot to me. But it simply says, we have recently become aware that this is being used to misinform. And they're saying, while ALC0315 and ALC0159 are being safely used in the injections, the material that Echelon Biosciences is making and selling is not being used in vaccine production and is only for research use in laboratories. Okay, then it says, when sold as laboratory products, the manufacturing and testing processes do not need to be strict as strict as they do when the same product is being administered to people. Well, you could read that two ways, right? So when we first went into this, it seems to suggest that they're saying, well, it's just not being used in production, except that you can prove that it is, right? But then you could read it another way where they're basically saying, we're not, we're not using, these are ones we're selling to other people. Right. They put they're claiming they put this out and they sell them. And it says very clearly not for human use on those main pages. And that's not what Pfizer's buying. They're Pfizer's buying from someone else. And those people, whoever they are, they don't list it in here. It says that when they're doing it, well, they're following good manufacturing practices. Okay, so that's why this is being argued that, well, people are misunderstanding that the ones from Echelon are literally not even connected. But the way that reads, it says that. The material that Echelon is making and selling is not being used in vaccine production. Why wouldn't they just explicitly say it's just simply not being used with Pfizer at all? It's interesting, right? But their argument, the narrative goes, is what they meant was that they're not even being used. Ours are only for research, and the people that buy them are for research. The ones buying for their injections are being made properly. Very kind of opaque, right? Well, what's interesting to me, now that look, that could be the reality. The point for me, though, is, okay, well, what else was being used then before that? Right? Where was it coming from? And then why were they only making a deal with the one we're now told was the one, Acutus, in 2022? Were they illegally using that before and they didn't have a deal yet? So my point, there's a a gap there. With how much they've hid from us, lied about, covered up, obfuscated, I wonder what's going on there. It, it, it could just be, it may not even be that these things are, they used those, or it could just be that they were doing something illegal, you know, using something they weren't supposed to until they made this deal. They didn't want you to know. I don't know. But I think it's very concerning. So overall, the point is that these are listed as not for human use, but they're arguing it's because they're only used for research. But my question would be, if they are using those and they've been using them prior to their deal with Acutus, where were they getting them from? And were they, in fact, using the ones that were listed not for human use? And that's why this was sort of a way to hide all this. I don't know. But it's weird. You go and you look into it for yourself and you find it very difficult to find anything prior to these deals right here or this one here. In any case, the point is, regardless of whether they're telling you they use the wrong ones or that they're dangerous, the, the science around it makes it clear regardless. 
And then on top of it, the polyethylene glycol and everything else being used, which, by the way, I thought it was important to reiterate what Dr. Fauci himself said about this in January 11th. Right. The whole this whole thing has been pulled, rolled back, according to the guy, the, the godfather of all whatever they want to call him. You know, the, the, the person that should be put in jail first for all the lies that were spun around this horrific discussion. January 11th, 2023, rethinking next generation vaccines for coronaviruses. Okay, so if right now we're being screamed about that, that it was like the narrative set for all these people was that this worked, the virus, the vaccines helped, and that's why this is over. That's, I swear to God, that's what people think right now, that want to lie to themselves and just grab the narrative versus all the evidence you can prove. People are saying that, though. The, va- the vaccines worked. Everything proves that. Like, it's just, it's just madness. But so then if that's the case, why does Fauci say that we need to rethink the direction? It's just it, it's so clear that people just are lying to themselves out of desperation. Viruses that replicate in human respiratory mucosa without infecting systemically, SARS-CoV-2, cause significant mortality, morbidity, and are important public health concerns. Well, the three points to make there, first of all. Vi- viruses that replicate in human respiratory mucosa. Okay, so then they knew that, as Dr. Bakhti was telling you, that it was all about mucosal immunity. And yet they didn't even try to make that happen. What do you think that means? Are you, are we really supposed to pretend that Fauci of all people was unaware of one of the most common discussed and Bhakti was screaming about this in 2020. They knew this guys, this is basic reality. Of course it could be that all of this is a big illusion, but the point is that what they said before this, regardless of whether you believe it is that that was the case. Then they roll this thing out and they didn't even talk about it. And then he comes back around after three years and goes, oh, well, you know, it didn't do this. And so, I mean, it's just so stupid. But overall, the point is, causes significant mortality? No, it doesn't, in fact. What we're staring at is something that is either not there or is wildly benign based on all the information we have. According to the Ionitis group, less than the flu from the very beginning. So setting the whole narrative with it's because it's dangerous, but really because it didn't even work. And then he says without, so mucosal uh, replicate in in mucosa but without infecting systemically isn't that the opposite we're being told right now the whole point is they're telling us COVID-19 causes all sorts of systemic problems it causes long COVID and it causes myocarditis and it causes neurological problems well according to your godfather of doctor science here he just said the opposite oops the point is they don't even care guys it doesn't even matter But going forward, it says, because these viruses generally do not elicit complete and durable protective immunity by themselves, fake news. Assuming it's even there, every single thing you can find right now, even from the NIH, says the opposite. Actually, here, just since that one's the easy one, look at that. First one to come up. Explain this for me. In January 26, 2021, lasting immunity found after COVID-19. This is from his own platform. And yet here he is going... Because they don't do that, make sense of that for me. Make sense of that for me. Or the one that I always point out, the most one of the most recent from 2021, August, ultra-potent antibodies against diverse and highly transmissible variants. Again, it says specifically that people that got sick right in the beginning have made antibodies that cross-neutralize emerging variants of concern with high potency and still to this point, this Omicron, everything. It's funny how the, the, the Mr. Science isn't ignoring all of the science. It's, he's, it's a, he's a dishonest person. There's no way to not see that today. So here he is, denying what NIH literally said about this. But he goes, since they, and he's not saying because Omicron, he's saying ever in general, because it didn't do that. He's lying to you. 
We, at the very least, lying to you what the science was saying that we're supposed to trust. We examined challenges that have impeded development of effective mucosal respiratory vaccines. What do you mean? was going to end up being mucosal immunity. It's literally impossible, as plenty of doctors who know better and are going, well, that's a lie. They're cowards. People like Bakhti are the ones that are telling the truth. Which, by the way, I'm going to do a deep dive on what's going on with Bakhti. Very short. And it's another upcoming show. It's pretty disgusting. Comments they claim are, you know, under, what, what's the term they use? Basically, the basic allegation is that somehow he's he's undermining the reality of the Holocaust or whatever. It's Or like inciting violence by doing so. So basically criminalizing speech, period. And they're also wrong about what he's saying. It's incredible, guys. But we'll come back to that. Concluding remarks, durably protective vaccines against non-systemic mucosal respiratory viruses, in that he's talking about SARS-CoV-2, with high mortality, which he doesn't have, have thus eluded development efforts. Now, he's really trying to make this sound broad so people that don't want to see this will just pretend like he just means in a, you know, where all of these general discussions, well, if even then it still includes the COVID-19 shot. What he's telling you is they have not done this. And it's even more clear right here. Past unsuccessful attempts to elicit solid protection against mucosal respiratory viruses, and that he means COVID-19, and to control the deadly outbreaks and pandemics they cause, which we're not, we're not seeing, have been a scientific and public health failure that must be urgently addressed let me know if you guys can hear me in the chat some people are saying the sound has been lost okay point being a public health failure that must be urgently addressed how else do you take that so that means that their past attempts to elicit this protection with these kind of virus, no matter how you spin this, it includes SARS-CoV-2, were fails. Failures. We are, and this is the stupid thing he ends with, we are excited and invigorated that many investigators and collaborative groups are rethinking from the ground up all of our past assumptions and approaches to preventing important respiratory... Oh, are you? You mean aside from the way you tried to arrest them, force them to take injections, and shout them down as fake news? I, oh, you're excited about it, though. Huh, rock and roll. Like, who takes this seriously? This man is a disgusting deceiver. It's, there's no way to, you cannot see, not see it based on what he just said. Now, overall, he goes, we failed. Now we have to rethink it. And we're excited that you're challenging these ideas. And then they just keep doing it. And they keep pushing it in. And they keep doing the same platform direction. They keep using lipid nanoparticles. They keep using mRNA. So they didn't change it then. How mind-blowing is that? So, Lipid nanoparticles are very clearly a problem in all of this, but it's all tied in with the bigger picture. That's include, that's the mod RNA and all the stuff we're talking about. But let's talk about the spike protein and how that plays into all of this. And then because of that, let's take a quick dance back to the, or rather a, let's, let's step back into the conversation of Dr. Buttar and what he was, people are arguing he was, uh, uh, um, what he was alleging. Now we've shown you this one many times. This is not up for debate. mRNA technology pioneer on Twitter spoke out and says, yes, the spike protein can shed. This is May 31st, 2021. Luigi Warren, 
he tweeted that vaccinated people with mRNA-based vaccines can shed the spike proteins. He tweeted this, they censored him for it, but they, they put it back because Luigi Warren is like the person who would know about this. As I said, he's the pioneer of, of, of specifically COVID-19 injections, but specifically mRNA and, and, the, and the whole process. But the point is that he spoke up and said, yes, I believe the shedding idea is that vaccinated shed spike protein, not virus. And it's certainly true that people vaccinated with mRNA vaccines do shed spike protein. But then he went on to say, but in minuscule amounts that almost certainly can't cause disease. But this is the point. When he said this, the common understanding was that one, it didn't circulate your bloodstream. Two, it didn't reproduce and or rather continue to amplify, self-amplify and continue to make more spike proteins. Right. And there was one other I was going to include that just lost. I just lost. Bottom line is that the information we were talking about was incorrect. And that's where we get into these kind of discussions, right? Where we've proven peer-reviewed science has shown sustained synthesis of the spike protein, right? So if we know it can shed at all, that means that this can continue to now that it's making so many of them and it's continuing to synthesize, it's continuing to make them. So the point is that, yes, this is possible. Now, can that get you sick to the same degree? I don't know. And the real question to ask is, what does that really mean? Right? So if we're not talking about a virus here. Now, this is important to discuss this and even a concept of people talking about the, the terrain theory versus germ theory concept. It's interesting how people seem to push back on the idea of like a virus-sized transistor, but I'm not sure why. Call it something else. Call it a nano-sized transistor. Right? So the point is, we're talking about a robot. We know that nanotechnology and robots exist. So is it is it not, why would we just because of the overlap of size, just pretend this is not even possible. It certainly might be a lie. I don't, I, we don't know. But so back to this, the point is, if we're talking about something that has one part of something, right? Not the whole thing, but it's one protein that comes off and can spread. It can shed, right? That's what we're talking about, going on with the, the, what they're discussing. We've talked about the Salk Institute. And plenty of other high-level peer-reviewed science that's saying specifically that, yes, the spike protein alone was enough to cause disease, which means, again, that it can cause symptoms that can then be spread and caught and spread and caught and spread. But we're just talking about a spike pro a protein. That's it. So what is that exactly? If not some sort of self-spreading something. I don't, I don't know if you would call it a vaccine, but this needs to be addressed. Right? I mean, and since we're talking about it, Let's, let's make sure people understand that this is not a hypothetical conversation. This was in 2020 by a gigantic group in Europe that was, it's kind of a, a tangential to, or adjacent to the UN, making these discussions about exactly what they were talking about making or having them, discussions. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, the word virus has been dominating media headlines as well as our daily lives. Did you know that one approach that has been proposed to control virally transmitted diseases is by releasing a virally transmitted vaccine? Unlike traditional vaccines, infectious vaccines do not require any individual consent. Infectious solutions are also being developed any... Don't miss the point there of the pregnant woman and the child and then the infant getting it from the pregnant woman and it's showing all the bacteria or whatever the virus, whatever it is, going down and passing along. Hey, we don't have to worry about informed consent anymore, right? That's that's what they're that's like, um, they're praising that concept, not in this video, but in the general conversation. Individual consent. 
Infectious solutions are also being developed for food and agriculture and yep. are currently making their way through the regulatory approval process. Guys, this is overwhelming everything. And they've already tried this. That we look up the the uh, insect allies conversation that most scientists around the world sign documents saying we know this is the weapon. That's why the dual use dual use research is so important like to, to understand. The point is this is right now exploding in the in the concept of of food and agri- agriculture in general, like the idea of the climate change battle, whatever they're fl- claiming they need to do, all of it. So here we are. And I don't know how you come back from something like this if it's already been released. However, do we really want to intentionally disperse these modified viruses outside the lab? Well, first of all, that's too late. Whether it's self-spreading or not, that's already happening. Whether you want to call it a virus or something else, we've already got modified versions of this floating around the world in people's bodies. That's what's already happened. Is this a forward march of science or a mistake? Join our live... Here's the group, 2020. This was a gigantic discussion. So, the point is quite clear that this is possible. And with what we now know about how much is happening, it almost seems inevitable that this is already happening. So that's why I want to come back to what somebody was saying. Now, to be very clear about this, I don't even know where this came from. I'm only using it as a standing point to make this argument and just understand that this is what's circulating right now, is that people are arguing that he, that Buttar said something to somebody, or rather in his interviews and so on, about when, when he was suffering after that CNN interview, where he, you've heard him say, or rather the interview circulating, where he said that he feels he was poisoned. What they're saying is that, that with a diagnosis of stroke and myocarditis and symptoms and biomarkers consistent with the injection adverse events, and he didn't have the injections, or at least he aggressively said so, and I, I actually believe him, I believed him. As you will see in the video, he believed that he was experiencing the result of shedding or self-amplifying, which would more so be self-spreading, self-amplifying, which I guess it's the same point, right? Because what we're talking about is this. This is the self-amplifying. That's why we're seeing it continue to be made and continue to be made. And it's then because it sheds, it's kind of the same point. And don't forget, we saw self-amplifying on the Pfizer's own documentation. There was also one from Imperial College of London talking about self-amplifying using the same technology. So is this not what we're talking about? Well, here's a study that makes this an interesting point, an overlap. Again, trying to overlap this with long COVID, but it says latest paper from Dr. Robin Kerr and this person, long COVID is primarily a spike protein induced thrombotic uh, vasculitis. Okay, well, if you just read that, why wouldn't that apply to the injection? Well, you'll see they desperately try to not associate this because they still run with the narrative that it's not the same thing, even though it's been proven that one, it's cytotoxic, and yes, it is. But the point is the study does say the spike protein, but of course they want to make it only about COVID-19. But what is the thing they keep telling everybody? In all of these studies, one thing you'll see them fail to do today is make sure that they discuss who has injections. Now, just because they think it's basically ubiquitous doesn't change the fact that you do have some people without them. And if you just so happen to have the ones without them not having the problem, well, that would kind of open the door, wouldn't it? When you have these kind of discussions about any of these things, efficacy, side effect, you have to ask, have they been injected? When have they been injected? And that plays a factor for sure. But it says long COVID, which will show again, my point I keep making is based on at least two peer-reviewed studies. Their their argument goes, this is not associated with SARS-CoV-2, which they then argue that means psychosomatic, which is one thing we continue to show. But I've, I've argued both. Like I have no doubt that 
There are people out there that are so scared and worked up with the narrative that every sniffle they have is something long COVID, right? It's psychosomatic to a degree. But I don't know why people then, in some cases, I know you in the audience know better, took that as me arguing that vaccine side effects weren't real. I don't know where somebody got that from. Obviously, if you actually cared to do even the smallest due diligence, you'd see that's one of the biggest things I talk about. But these things can exist in the same conversation. And there's going to be an overlap for sure. But first of all, realize that when the people are screaming, trust the science, aren't looking at the two largest studies that both say psychosomatic, not associated with COVID-19. That means something. At least at the very least, they're ignoring the science. But so when we talk about long COVID, realize that in the conversation. But it says, is a continuation of acute COVID pathology. Well, according to everything we can see, that's the one thing it's not. But it says, considering the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein can independently induce fibrinoid, uh, fibrinoid microclots, platent act, act, activation, and endothelitis. What is that one? Endothelitis. We predict that persistent spike protein will be a key mechanism driving the continued coagulopathy of in long COVID. Okay, so, well, if the whole same point is that we know the spike protein alone can do that, which, by the way, is still something pushed back on by plenty of people that are trusting the science, which is strange, seeing as how the science has always found that, it seems odd. But it says we propose long COVID should be referred to as spike protein-induced thrombotic vasculitis. Well, okay, so why would you go out of your way to not be like, well, could it be the vaccine? Which is, by the way, what happened. And I'll show you this next one. Here's another example from April 2023. SARS-CoV-2 spike protein accumulation in the skull, the brain. Well, we just talked about what Dr. Pilevsky was saying. Well, it absolutely does cross the blood-brain barrier. And in fact, that's exactly what we saw in one of the earlier posts we just looked at. Right? The reality that it does absolutely end up in the blood-brain barrier. Was it this one? I forget. Ah, we'll come back. So this is another one, same point. It says, our results revealed the accumulation of spike protein in the skull marrow, brain meninges, and brain parenchyma. The injection of the spike protein alone caused cell death in the brain. I just don't know why that's not something that makes, it's not relevant to people. We observed the presence of spike protein in the skull of deceased long after the COVID-19 infection. There's so many markers here. That you should go, okay, well, maybe there's something else involved. Why don't you even ask if they've had an injection? Seems pretty telling. Well, here's the report from the study. Study found long-term brain damage associated with COVID-19. Not the vaccine. Fact check. So they're fact checking people's perception of what this study says. Well, here's what it says. Dr. Uh, Dr. Ali, or, well, what, I think there was one thing up here. Oh, just the same way they dismiss these. Here's an Instagram post that says, you know, like that's the core of the conversation. But it says the the doctor, the co-author of the paper said they did not examine the COVID-19 vaccine of its side effects. Not, Not like you needed to see that. This is the case. They didn't. They're not looking at it. They don't care whether it's there. Just like Scotland says, we're la, la, la. We're not even going to look because we already know. That's stupid. That's not science. But it says, quote, we have done zero experiments using the vaccine and we have shown and claimed zero side effects of the vaccine. Our work reports the presence of the spike protein in the skull of deceased individuals long after their COVID infection, suggesting the spike's persistence may contribute to long term. See my point? Like, okay, certainly possible. 
But when you literally just said, first of all, long after you had an infection and you you know the vaccine is producing spike proteins, this is willful ignorance in my mind. Not because you know, if you look, you might have to talk about it. It says none of the COVID-19 vaccines authorized in the U.S., this is according to the fact check, contain live virus. Well, this is the game they've been playing from the beginning, according to the CDC. Well, the point is that doesn't matter because if the, the point they say that because their argument is only the live virus is what can get people sick. But according to their like, this is what's actually funny about this. The study that they're fact checking literally says the spike protein alone can cause cell death in the brain. And then they fact check it and go, but but it's not a live virus. So it can't get people. But they, the study that you think you're fact checking literally just said you don't need the live virus. All you need is the spike protein. And the spike protein is made by the injection. Okay, great fact check. Instead, the mRNA in the vaccine teaches the body cells to make copies of COVID-19 spike protein so they can later recognize and find out the virus. They've got. Okay, so you literally just said in your own fact check that spike protein is being produced by the injection. And with the study that you're fact-checking, that makes it quite, pretty clear that that could be the culprit. It's, it's very basic. Quote, the issue is that during infection, there's an enormous amount of viral replication and spike protein production, which impacts many organs, including the brain. Well, yeah, that's the point. Sustained synthesis. So too, duh. Well, here's the interesting part. Even if you want to pretend there's a thing called COVID-19 that is causing rapid replication, viral replication, well, that ends right? Goes away. You're done. But what keeps happening is sustained synthesis of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And that's why people are suffering still and, and continuing to get sick, increased risk of cancers and other things. And it's the same stuff we keep talking about. This is, some, this is from April 2022 from Science Direct. So they just don't know what they're talking about. They don't know part of the story or they're willfully ignoring that. The point is that, yeah, so too does this. And it goes even longer. So everything you said is making our case for us. But then, of course, they go, COVID vaccines is safe and effective, according to the CDC. <laughs> cool. They just keep yelling that, safe and effective, safe and benefits outweigh the risk. Here's another one. And this is going to blow your mind. Probable causes of myocarditis after mRNA vaccines explained. Well, funny how this explained, even though in here they kind of go weird, like they waffle about everything. So it's not really explained, but that's all they're really trying to do is undermine the reality that this thing is directly causing all the things we're talking about. But it says admitting that vaccines have health risk is uncomfortable. Why is that? Doesn't that, I mean, isn't that funny? This point is a very important to me. So this person's writing this article. Now, I don't think that was written in a way to make it sound like that was that was just him expressing something like, well, don't we all agree? We're all on the same side, right? It's just uncomfortable. But I think he inadvertently it, 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 uh, highlighted something. Why exactly would it be uncomfortable to point out that there's a risk? The only reason that would be uncomfortable is if there's a political agenda around not seeing that, right? I mean, how ridiculous is that? It should be, hooray, thank God, we found that it's dangerous. Don't take it anymore. Well, no, because that's not what they want. So it's uncomfortable for them to talk about the thing that is obviously happening. Isn't that just ridiculous? But it's because however safe they are in the vast majority. Okay, keep that sentence with you as we go through this. For influenza vaccines, cerebral seizures, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which seems to happen with basically every injection under the sun, and anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis can happen. Well, yeah, there's risks with all these things, which we're always trying to tell you, which is why there's no world in which any of these things should be forced on anybody. 
But it says, thankfully, the risks of these vaccine adverse events. Oh, and then it goes COVID-19 and talks about the fatal blood clots, heart and myocarditis. It's weird how they love to go like they let this is the game they always play. Anaphylaxic and blood clots, but but only AstraZeneca and OJJ only though. That's ridiculous. Not true. Not even remotely. The spike protein is in all of them. It's the same stupid game. But then they go, but myocarditis, but only in these two. Nope, nope. Same game. Same thing. The problem is they just they're trying to make it seem like there's different things and you can kind of categorize them. No, these things are all dangerous for everybody, no matter what. The science and the information and the observational points are undeniable. Aren't we so baffled why everything's getting worse? We're baffled. But it says, thankfully, the risks of these vaccines, adverse events are very low. And don't outweigh the benefits in most situations. So even that statement means in some cases they do. Oops. That's what we're not supposed to say. So if in any cases the benefits don't outweigh the risk, well, then you just lost. But that's stupid because they're you, this is them slowly walking back some of this stuff. So they like that coming out with articles that go, not every scientific study is actually valid. Well, that's what we were saying in the beginning. And now you're saying that because you're losing the battle of the scientific research. But in any case, remember this sentence. The risks of these injections are very low and don't outweigh the benefits. And then he goes on to say this previously in mRNA vaccine safety and risks one year update after you know, everything, all the studies I covered this is the writer saying this two new high quality population based studies that shed light on the risks of heart inflammation from mRNA vaccines. I'll just describe their findings in brief here. Remember very low and bet outweigh the risks don't outweigh the benefits. He says in one of them, researchers from Israel, which we've talked about, found individuals vaccinated with Pfizer's mRNA vaccine had a 3.24 time increased risk of a heart problem called myocarditis within 21 days of either the first or the second dose compared to people who never had any of it. <laughs> okay. Just that one point should be like, well, you're stupid because what you just said is completely contradicted by that statement. You can't go, you can't, oh, well, heart problems are minor. There's no such thing, especially since about 25, it was 26 to 55% of these cases when they're non-serious in, or I always do that. The risk of mortality for non-serious cases of myocarditis can be increased by 26 to 55% over the next 10 years. That's according to NIH study. But yet they want they want to tell you there's no problem. That's not true. You can find Fauci and other people before this telling you there's no such thing as a non-serious. These are dangerous. And why you want a three and a half time risk increase for heart problems for something that's not even remotely dangerous for most people is ridiculous. But let's go to the next part because it gets worse for the second study. Remember, not low risk. Researchers from the U.S. calculated that 12 to 39 year olds had a 9.8 times increase of myocarditis, pericarditis at days 1 to 21 of vaccination compared to those at days 22 to 42 of vaccination. Okay, so you know how that's, a, this is the, the one of the craziest parts. It says this gives an excess of 6.3 million cases per doses. Holy crap. 6.3 cases, or excuse me, I said that wrong. 6.3 cases per million doses. Still, same, same, it's ridiculous. But realize this. First of all, 9.8 times increased risk of myocarditis is obscene, especially for something in this age group in particular is benign. I want to try to, I, I should have grabbed this to begin with. You know, I've got this somewhere. 
why is this so hard to find? Every time I look for this exactly, it doesn't pop up. What was it? It was risk. COVID-19. Damn it. God, it drives me crazy. The Ionitis group. What did I do to find it last time? There's a study. No, that's the older one. Son of a gun. Well, bottom line is the study came out and it very clearly showed this. And it drives me crazy that I searched for this literally by title and it, and it still doesn't come up. <laughs> God, it makes me mad. I want to find it. I, want to, I just want to get there. Because it makes me feel like they don't want people seeing this. What did I do to find that? Damn it. Uh, let's see. God, I, I have to let it go. Damn it. I want to punch the computer. Well, anyway, let's go keep going. So the point, where were we? Is that it's less than the flu for everybody. I mean, here, this here's a good one that I think I can grab. Whoops. Without mixing everything up, even though I just did that. There we go. Is the Oxford calculator. Or not. There it is. Oh, look at that. (laughs) See my point? This literally just made my point. Clearly, they don't want people knowing this stuff anymore. Why is that? Why would Oxford remove their calculator for COVID risk? You want to know why? Because it shows you that it's less than the flu. It shows you that people under 19 have literally a one in a million risk from dying. That's It means basically not there. God, that's so crazy. Real time, guys. We do it live. Do it live! All right, so... The point was 9.8 times risk. Now, the other point I was going to make is that it says at days 1 to 21 of vaccination compared to 22 to 42 of vaccination. So that's actually almost a 10-time increase compared to a previous phase of vaccination. Compared to placebo, it's way more. Just crazy. But it goes forward, and then it, uh, yeah, then it goes on to say there are many other studies on mRNA vaccine-related heart inflammation with similar findings too. But the two discussed ones are the higher quality with larger sizes and proper control groups. So there's two huge ones that very clearly show you a dramatic increased risk, and then there's a whole bunch of others that agree with that. But let's go back and remember what he said. Very low, and outweigh the, the risks don't outweigh the benefits. How do you even pretend that makes sense? He says, first, it's unlikely that infections had caused the myocarditis or pericarditis in recent vaccine individuals. Well, that's exactly the point. Several case series on this matter did not detect the presence of infections that can cause inflammation. So he's literally telling you that it wasn't COVID. But we know that because the studies will show you that there is no risk of myocarditis. Or that's you know one, one of the, the highest levels. Studies tell you exactly that. And this is held up by the experts telling you this is the the peak of the scientific research in this topic. The best done, large study, population-based in Israel. And again, it says, where was it? Got to find the start of the sentence. 
What in the hell? Post-COVID-19 infection was not associated with either myocarditis or pericarditis. We did not observe an increased risk of either. Ridiculous. But it goes moving on. An animal study offers clues to the probable cause of mRNA vaccine-related heart inflammation. This study examined the blood, tissue, and organ profiles of mice injected with Pfizer's mRNA vaccine via intramuscular versus intravenous route. Surprisingly, the intravenous route route induced apoptotic, apoptotic cell death, as well as a minor spike protein expression in heart muscle cells, inflaming the heart muscles. That is myocarditis. But the mice exhibited no symptoms of illness, suggesting that the biomolecular heart problems were not of clinical severity. The point is that what you're talking about is the fact that this does, yes, it sustains synthesis in the blood, which we've talked about. Vaccine antigen detected in the blood of mRNA-1273 vaccine recipients. It says right here, uh, the proteins were measured in plasma samples collected from 13 participants, and it says 11 of 13 showed the spike protein as early as one day after the injection. Think about that. Here's the other one. Spike, this is from 2023. Spike protein, MR, or rather specifically SARS-CoV-2 spike mRNA vaccine sequences circulate the blood for up to 28 days. I mean, I, I can go into the whole Red Cross garbage where they still argue that that's not true. I mean, I might as well since people should look, should call them out every time this comes up because of how ridiculous this is. If they're still arguing it's not true, that they say we don't differentiate because it does not enter the bloodstream. Call them out, guys. They're lying. They know this is where it is. It's right there. How do they get away with that? So the point was, though, as it says, the apoptosis is a process of programmed cell death that is used during early development to eliminate unwanted cells. That's what's happening in these mice that get injected with the injection that's going in your baby's arm. Surprisingly, you know, and the point was in the blood, which we know is happening. But it says neither myocarditis nor spike protein expression was present in mice in the intercellular injection group. The authors then speculate that traces of mRNA vaccine entered the veins by accident during intramuscular injection might induce myocarditis. Well, if the point is that doesn't even have to happen. It's already in the blood. That's why this is happening. It says the rare injection of a vaccine into the vein, not rare, during planned intramuscular injection could contribute to the onset of myopericarditis. This is a relevant question since it is generally not recommended that the person administering the injection aspirate before. And that, that's the point that basically in pulling back a little bit to get a little bit of blood. So you know that it's not in the, or rather if you see blood, you know, it's in the vein when it shouldn't be. But I argue they didn't care. It says the CDC, their current guidelines, they recommend not doing that, you know, to minimize pain. So knowing that this could be the biggest problem possible, you did just because they might have a little bit of pain. Yeah, maybe the seizures and the heart attacks will a little bit more, but, you know, who cares? That said, if traces of mRNA vaccine really enter the bloodstream after the injection, which we know it does, they might be able to enter the T-tubulas of heart muscles and are large enough, in theory, to allow mRNA vaccine to pass through. Well, exactly. This fact check is proving to us exactly what's happening. The the T-tubule tubular system of uh, cardiomyocytes may concentrate mRNA vaccine lipid nanoparticles like a sponge. Well, look at that. Another hop hypothesis researchers have raised in molecular is molecular mimicry. Look at all this coming together where antibodies generated against the mRNA vaccine encoded spike proteins also reacted against 
heart-related proteins due to similarities in their protein structures? Or how about the fact that these things end up other places and your body attacks these other places because it doesn't understand, you know, we, we went over all of this. The problem might happen in individuals with a genetic or environmental predisposition to autoimmune disorders. Well, guess what? Remember they're saying these people should get it first, even though historically that's never been what happens. After all, in the context of COVID-19 vaccines, the mRNA and DNA vaccine relies on the body to produce spike proteins to train the immune system. Exactly the point. Aren't we baffled? I'm so baffled about what's going on. Well, we see things like this still happening. Now, I can't say for sure we know this is because of the injection, but another Mercer soccer player dies, collapsed on the field during the game, April 11th. He went into cardiac arrest. He was 21 years old in excellent shape. That's not normal. No matter what anyone wants to spin, it's not normal. But we don't know for sure. But we do know this is happening. We just talked about this recently. WHO warns of an unusual surge in severe myocarditis in babies. It just makes your heart hurt, man. Like, no pun intended, really. Like, it's, this makes me sad. It's so disgusting as Scotland doesn't even want to look into it because you're a conspiracy theorist, right? Rich People Weekly has been doing some good work on this, you know, following up on the CDC. Where here they are still as of May 19th, yesterday. COVID vaccine recommendations for children six months to five years old continue to include multiple doses. My God. My God. Right now you're telling people to take one bivalent, but you're still telling young children to get multiple doses. Well, that seems to add up with the DTAP thing we just looked at. Weird how you give them twice as much of the antigen when that doesn't even make sense. Something's wrong here. But Rich People Weekly points out, what's the rate of subclinical myocarditis? Current studies suggest 05 to 2.5%. How are you recommending this if you don't know? Where's your study? Oh, right. You're waiting on the manufacturer to do it. And then the FBA, FBA, FDA gave them an extension. Dr. Uh, Professor Norman Fenton points out, I think we need to add expert bafflement as a special category of COVID vaccine adverse events. <laughs> so sad. Note that the report says experts are baffled as to what caused the sudden spike in myocarditis and ba- it's just disgusting. Now realize that a lot of these kids are pu- bu- older than six months and a lot of them have had injections, but even those that don't, we just talked about the shedding of the spike protein, but even more than that, it's been verifiably shown through both VAERS reports as well as studies that this stuff can pass through breast milk. Even their own trial that you can look at, discussed how that's possible to spread through people in the same room, to spread through contact. They talked about all of this. Just incredible. Dr. F- uh, Professor Norman Fenton, someone you should follow. He's doing good work on this. Let's see. That's driving me crazy. <laughs> I really want to find this. Let me do that. Oh, you know what? I think I know what to do. One of the things I think very odd, I'm getting almost ubiquitously better results on Google. Yep, look at that. Than I am from from Brave. That 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 drives me crazy. Look at that. First look pops up immediately on Google. How does that make sense? In any case. To finish, at the end, is important to realize that according to peer-reviewed science as of January 1st, 2023, from one of the most respected groups in this field, at a global level, pre-vaccination, before they ever gave vaccinations, infection fatality rate may have been as low as 0.03 to 0.07. That is 0.03 under 59, 
0.07 under 69. Then realize his point is that 94% of the global population is younger than 70. So that means that 94% of the entire world was at no more risk than 0.07. And yet they pushed this on people when they knew it would give them a 36% increased risk of serious adverse events. One in 800 we're talking about. Talking about all the increased risk of everything we've seen. All the anaphylaxis, all the myocarditis and the blood clots and the strokes and the heart attacks. All for that. 86% younger than 60. And then realize if you're just under 19, 0.0003% risk. This is what they're selling people on. Well, uh, Pelham has pointed out 15 babies in the UK have myocarditis. This is what we're just talking about. One has died and eight are intensive care. Experts are baffled. Alex Y points something out that I think is important. This is why this happens. In every to- every topic, whether we're talking about foreign policy, transgender, East policy, the point is, you see this. All the experts agree. Well, some people speak up. Well, not all of us. I that's not what I think. And they, you know, they show them shooting them canceled. All the experts agree. I mean, really, guys, this is not even this is what's happening. Now, you can argue it's because the experts are realizing this person's not reliable or whatever, but that's not how they're supposed to work. That's not that's not trusting the scientific method. That's trusting the narrative. Trusting the scientific method is considering alternative perspectives and weighing the evidence and having peer-reviewed science. That's not what we're doing anymore, or if ever. This is how it's working. We saw that with the whole COVID-19 discussion, how clearly they were right in a lot of different ways. Not everybody, but they were cast aside. It's important to see that. And we get people like this. And this is the argument I keep making. With things like this, here's what happens. The people that have the courage to speak up at a time when that's difficult get cast aside. The people that might have more understanding of this, that it's unique and not just this mass adoption, will get cast aside. People that simply have a different opinion that could be the, the reality could get, get cast aside. So what you end up with is people who I are, and let, again, assuming that they're correct, which is what we're now seeing, that they were right that these were dangerous and they were a lot of problems and these things, all the stuff we're now talking about. They got cast aside and what you're left with is nothing but people who are too dumb to know they're wrong or for a multitude of reasons, don't care. I can't get past that point lately and that scares me. That's everywhere. That's in, you know, experts on Russia, experts on Iran, experts on vaccine, everything we're talking about. When it comes to a contentious discussion, the experts are the people that are proving, selling the right narrative. And you end up with people that don't know they're wrong or don't care. And this is what you end up with. Experts that are standing up and going, this dodgy meta-analysis that anti-maskers were using to falsely claim that mask use causes harm or has been retracted. You know, despite all of the endless peer-reviewed studies before all this that still say that right now, but you know, she knows, has been retracted. Well, has it been retracted by the team? No. The peer-reviewed process? No. The editorial team at the behest of outside people? Okay. Did they go along with it? No. They said, that's not right. We'll show you. And just to add a completely non-scientific anecdote, okay, then why add it? My oxygen saturation was 100% after several hours. Meaningless point. Utterly meaningless. Probably because it wasn't being worn. Like, there's a thousand things you could talk about. Just be, Just the hypoxia and hypercapnia part of this is not the is not even the most important risk but you know because she knows right obviously not here's what she points at 
The one we just talked about, by the way, which is a very important study that has all sorts of important overlaps. But just because it undermines the reality of how these might work. Oh, fake news. We can't allow that. Well, it says it's been retracted. An investigation was conducted. Okay, well, why? Well, concerns were raised. By who? By whom? We, oh, we don't, we, you don't get to find out. Okay, well, then how does that even make sense? Why is somebody outside of the process be able to go, that's wrong, and then you just conduct an investigation? Wasn't the investigation the peer review process? Yes, this is different. This is the editorial team for political reasons deciding to investigate, which I doubt is even happening, to be quite honest. And then it was found that the complaints were valid. Well, why wasn't that caught in the peer review process by other experts? Because that's not what happened. And that the article does not meet the standards of editorial and scientific soundness. Well, first of all, that is exactly what was met because that's the only process that's ever gone through, the peer review process. That's what the whole point is. Therefore, the article's been attracted. Well, the point was the authors did not agree. This is unprecedented for COVID-19. This has never happened before this. Now they just act like it's normal because we're doing our due diligence. Okay, well, what's the point of the peer review process if all you can, if, if you could just have somebody else go, I don't like that, and they decide to do it all over again? By the way, not including a peer review process, but including an editorial team that's reviewing this with obvious political interests. It's just ridiculous, but this is what you end up with because the people that have the courage to stand by the challenging science are already cast aside. And don't forget, by the way, you're already seeing in a very broad public way, the general narrative is already rolling back. Well, are they effective? <laughs> the point is they literally, although the evidence suggests they could work, so they, that, the, their standing point is that they might work. What? It says in averting this, there are substantial gaps and necessary to fill them with more evidence. My God, isn't that exactly what we were saying in the beginning, that it's not actually common sense and completely sound and scientists settled? Well, what do you know? It only took three and a half years for them to come back around to go, maybe not. Oh, it's just so sad. You know, well, too late. We're already 47 studies away from that, where we already know that they don't actually work. They're not statistically significant in reducing transmission of any of these viral discussions at all. Not N95s, not MAT, not co- that's because they're not made for that. They're not, there's no standardized process for any of these things other than high-level respirators above N95s that they are made for individual people and fitted and worn properly. It's just, it's incredible. It's so wild how obvious this is. And the saddest part is I bet you Susan Oliver here genuinely thinks she's right, which was my point about why she's in this position to begin with. And then you got people like this. Chief economist, former chief strategist, senior economist so clearly high level individual and in all these discussions and you know economies but you know strategist goldman sachs wondering if i'm just too uptight about flying this is obviously on a flight to beautiful frankfurt now this is not a joke you might think some of these are parodies this is a real guy this is what he's doing on may 18th 2023 a face shield which by the way was literally shown by even the cdc to not be useful they're literally telling you that it makes no sense at all, that you shouldn't even be worn, but they don't care because they're the ones making the science now, the narrative. Like, so as they now go, no, no, you don't have to wear masks anymore. They go, you're wrong. Showing you that they were never trusting what they thought was the science because that was what they were doing, following what the CDC said. And now when the CDC says they don't have to, they go, you're crazy. So it's all about politics. It's all about perception, narratives, and, pol- and you know, political sides. This guy is literally wearing a... a 
a N95, it looks like, a face shield, glasses, the whole, I mean, this is ridiculous. Maybe the glasses are what he always wears. But this is a problem. These people are suffering, right? That's somebody who is mentally, you know, you are, you are in a very dangerous, like, I argue that you're scared and that you are in a position of uncertainty and insecurity and you are been tr- driven into a place of, of sh- shrinking at the, of every shadow. Right. I mean, I just and this and the funny thing is they like to frame the other like people not doing this as scared ones because we are afraid of an injection. (laughs) It's not even remotely the case, not even remotely. And they know that. It's just sad. I get these people lead the charge. Well, we already talked about this. We already talked about the new injections are being made and everything we just talked about. Nothing is changing. Right. So we have Dr. Fauci going, it all failed. We need to reevaluate the whole thing as we literally make another one with the same thing. Same platform, same direction, same instruction, same agreed, same thing. Except we're going to add a new genetic sequence for the new variant that we have never actually isolated, you know, because that makes sense. How does any of this add up? Like genuinely think about this with everything we're talking about. How in the world do we pretend like any of this makes sense? Forgot to actually bookmark these tabs. I almost closed some stuff. And it's not just the Fauci part, right? Oh, it looks like I did, actually. Oh, just in case. It's the, it's the lipid nanoparticles. It's the spike protein. I mean, it's all of this stuff. And then even more so, which we're going to get into right now, is the same thing we pointed out briefly the other day, is how does it make sense for them to pretend this to, you know, we should be using this new one, X the whatever the WHO wants us to create here, the XBB variant focus, when we already know that they've barely used any there's no evidence to make any of this make sense it's gone from rush through studies without any real animal trials and skipping past phase three until way after the fact and then it went to just kind of translating that over because well it's the same kind of thing then it was like well ba4 and five and it's it's we can use the small studies but then it went well that was the eight mice right we have the eight mice says that makes sense then it went on to ones right after that they just said we'll just keep using it we'll remove the older one now they're just going make the xbb variant Realize we're, we're, not, we're talking about the exact same thing. They're going to use nothing. And that is what Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Jessica Rose, they've been speaking out about this going, just wait. They're going to skip right into the next one. And they're going to argue they don't need any safety trials because it's already been proven. Like, even if you think that that would even make sense, that you could somehow pretend that the original version they made would somehow translate to all these changes. That's crazy to me. But even if you think that makes sense, they're not safe. The evidence is not there. The reality in the world shows you these are killing people, but they're going, but we know it's safe. So let's make the next one. As we're literally staring at the British Medical Journal study that says they're a net harm, that the right now, the bivalent version, which is what they're going to do, they're turning this into the same thing. They're just going to make it the XBB valent one. Bivalent, because they're going to include different, I guarantee different shots. But I guess technically what they're saying is only focus on XBB even though already that's what they're telling us is drifting away and something else is happening. It's the same game. But they're telling you that this direction hurts people. To prevent one hospitalization, it takes 40,000 people getting three shots to stop one hospitalization, but it causes 18.5 serious adverse events. There's no misunderstanding that. No studies. And we just talked about this absurdity where the even the ridiculous monkeypox oops, monkeypox emergency, which the California is already trying to extend, even though no one's even talking about it. Nine of the 13 cases they found were people that had both doses. 
There's no way to pretend, well, it's because everybody's vaccinated. Well, not that. You can't, play, you can't play the card you did with COVID. You can't say, well, it's because everyone's vaccinated. And you're, you're, it's an illusion you're creating. Not here. Very minimal people had gotten this. It's very, it's very sparse. And nonetheless, they have 13 cases and nine of them had two injections in their body. There is literally no misunderstanding that. People that are getting injections are increasing their risk for a, whatever mechanism you want to discuss. There's a lot of them who can entertain. Either way, this is what they're doing to people. And even and regardless, they're just going to keep marching forward. It's mind-blowing. And this is where it gets really concerning for me to finish this out today is about the ferritin nanoparticle conversation. So let's not forget all of this. All of the risk of the nanoparticles, even before we even get to the ferritin conversation, the idea of the nanoparticles, lipids specifically, which they're still using in this, are, are potentially dangerous when taken in, when considering all the different things they did. Right, using the mod RNA pseudo methyl pseudouridine overlap, which creates the problem. Then using polyethylene glycol to make it less degrade, uh, less degradation. Even though that itself increases the risks, on top of the fact that it, I mean, we went over all all of this is the same stuff. Is the point? They're using the same technology and the same thing. All they're doing is adding this for specifically flu, but also using the ferritin focus. We'll show you right now. Fed start enrolling volunteers for mRNA flu vaccine trial, May 16th. This is their universal, the one we were just talking about in the beginning of 2020. We told you this is where it was actually focused on before COVID. It's the H1SSF3928 mRNA and LNP. That's the standing name. Phase one trial will be conducted at Duke University, North Carolina. The NIAID said on Monday, the name... H1SSF is an abbreviation of H1 hemoglutinin stabilized stem ferritin, meaning that the vaccine uses the stem part of the influenza hemoglutinin protein displayed on the surface of a ferritin nanoparticle as as the immunogen. The stem remains largely unchanged throughout influenza mutations as compared to the head, which is constantly changing and, and so on and so on. It says the H1SSF3928 mRNA LNP is not only is not the only mRNA-based flu shot candidate in the works. In January, Pfizer chief executive Albert Borla in Davos during the World Economic Forum or told them that his company is working on a combination mRNA vaccine for both flu and COVID, which we already told you about, in fact. All of this rolling out, acting like this has been a big success. Clearly, it has not. Well, here's what's interesting. Here's the actual release from the NIH. Here's the actual trial itself. What you'll find ominously not included is the word ferritin. I wonder why that is. Just my opinion. Asking a question. May 15th. Clinical trial. Now, this is after. What's weird, by the way, is they'd already completed the first part of this. But this is the first thing we're really hearing about it. And like, this is the... The trial candidates begin. This is because people are now going to be taking this, even though I think that's already happened. Phase one trial will test the experimental vaccine known as H1SSF3928 mRNA LNP. That's mRNA lipid nanoparticle. The trial will enroll, and this is the weirdest part to me here. You point out where the placebo is taking place. I think this is designed, just like with the meningitis part of the, the previous discussion, to can, to make this seem less less severe. It says the trial will enroll up to 50 healthy volunteers, 18 to 49, three groups of study participants, 10 participants each, will be vaccinated with 10 
25 and 50 micrograms of the experimental vaccine. Now, remember, it's called experimental because it's experimental. It's, it's being tested. So remember the time when everybody was pushing back on the, that the COVID injection wasn't experimental, <laughs> even though it literally was, and it still is. I mean, it's just embarrassing. So as we go through the process yet again, realize this too is experimental. It's just amazing that we with so many things were pushed back on by the bleeding mob who had no idea what they were talking about because they looked up what the CDC said that day. But it says after evaluation of the data to determine, oh, son of a gun. <laughs> that's, that's really frustrating. Hold on. I know. I don't think I have any else highlighted. I'm just going to refresh this. So it says uh, after evaluation of the data to determine an optimum dosage, an additional 10 participants will be enrolled to receive that dosage. So, so far, we just have only injections being given. The study also will include a group of participants who will receive a current quadrivalent vaccine. Now, most people don't even realize that. The current injection has, has four different things in it. I don't know why that makes sense. Like, again, the whole point is they, well, the bottom line is always is they guess every single year, which is why most of the times these don't even work. But it says this will allow the researchers a point of direction, compar direct comparison between the immunogenicity and safety of the candidate vaccine and available flu vaccines. So you're literally comparing this, the safety in comparison to another vaccine that has a lot of the same problems. Participants will be regularly evaluated to assess the vaccine's safety and secondarily its efficacy and will receive follow-up appointments. Where's the placebo in all this? Am I crazy? Here's the actual study to safety to evaluate the uh, the study to evaluate the safety and of a single dose. Now, same thing. There's only two places this entire thing even mentions the word ferritin, which seems crazy to me. And it's way down the bottom in, in regard to the exclusion and inclusion parts. Here's the identifier. You'll see that later. It says eligible participants will be sequentially enrolled at the same point to get different doses and 10 people receive the current quadru quadrivalent ones. It says, and they will be followed for safety, but only their immune responses will be compared to those of the participants receiving the ferritin injection. Okay, well, when you're saying it's for safety, how exactly are you comparing this if all you're doing is going, well, here, here's the point. I can almost promise you their argument is, well, because we know the flu vaccine is very safe. Well, even if that was the case, which is not, in my opinion, it's not how you do this. This is a d designed, in my opinion, if I'm not missing something, to make it look like it's less dangerous. But here, you, you, there's no mention of ferritin except for way down here. Exclusion criteria. Which, by the way, it basically means there's a problem with ethics or some kind of compromising situation for what they're doing. And I find it interesting that one of the inclusion or exclusion is total iron binding capacity ferritin and troponin outside the laboratory normal range of screening. So if somebody has too high iron binding capacity or ferritin or troponin levels or whatever, they, they won't be included. Okay, well, that's interesting to me. Isn't that possible that other people might? It seems that there's more about this than what we're being told. I'm, that's my opinion. Then it says, having a history of receiving previous ferritin-based vaccines or investigational F. That's interesting to me. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily means anything. I just think that's an interesting point. So if you've previously tried one of their other ones, which we'll end with today, well, maybe you're not allowed to. Why is that? Well, here was the first one. This is from April 4th. This is the dose safety tolerability and immunicity of H1 stabilized stem ferritin vaccine. 
to test the safety and effect, effectiveness of that stem ferritin vaccine injection. Well, what you'll find is that it's the same thing. It's the same discussion of people getting the, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Tapered doses. I'm trying to find real quick. I thought I had, I guess they don't have it highlighted, but they got the tapered doses and they got the group getting the, the other shots. Dang it, where was that? In any case, my thought, what's, oh, and the same thing down here, previous investigational ferritin-based vaccines exclusion. So what's weird though is that, so this is not supposed to be the same thing. This, May 12th, the study to evaluate the safety and immunogenicity, this, this is the second one. And yet this says the same thing. I just find it strange. So I wonder if they're mixed. If, if I don't know if this is about the idea of if they're conflating. Maybe they're just the news or the reporting is misrepresenting this or NIH. I don't know. Or maybe I'm misunderstanding something. But the point is the idea of the different doses and the non-placebo seems to be right here. It's the same thing. Seems strange to me. How do you not have a placebo in a safety test? Anyway, to the point. It's just this right here where you can see this is the group and it says a vaccine comprised of an HA stem domain from influenza and a genetically fused, the, the, this H1N1 genetically fused to the ferritin protein. That's interesting terminology I didn't see used anywhere else. Genetically fused. So obviously this is genetic modification and we know that already, but it's an interesting point that all these terms, ferritin in general, it's odd that in NIH's own post, they wouldn't say that, right? Shouldn't they be screaming about the vert, how great it is? We just did something new and we're, it's very strange. And this is where it all comes back to, to me. We've already talked about this. If you know that, if you watch this show, you've seen this more than once. Now I'm not saying that this is what that is. What I'm saying is that this is possible with what's going on in those injections. This could very well be what this is or could be turned into, could be used. Listen for yourself. Genetically engineered magnetoprotein remotely controls brain and behavior. March, 2016. Researchers in the United States have developed a new method for controlling the brain circuits associated with complex animal behaviors using genetic engineering to create a magnetized protein that activates specific groups of nerve cells from a distance. Now ask yourself why in the, why they need a ferritin-based injection to stop the flu. I don't understand what that why that makes sense to anybody. In recent years, Researchers developed a number of methods that enable them to remotely control specified groups of neurons and to probe the workings of neural circuits. Now, that seems more specifically internal brain functions, right? But as we go through this, you'll see they're literally talking about actual movement of actual creatures. I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, basically says that, uh, that obviously this, there's a whole overlap to this with the research that bought the Lieber Langer point of this. It's the same research, same kind of stuff. Several earlier studies have shown that nerve cell proteins, which are activated by heat and mechanical pressure can be genetically engineered. So that they become so sensitive to radio waves, magnetic fields by attaching them to an iron storing protein called ferritin to an inorganic paramagnetic particles or, or to that. It says when they, introduce this genetic construct to human embryonic kidney cells growing in petri dishes the cells synthesized the magnetoprotein ferritin and inserted it into their membranes application of a magnetic field activated the engineered trpv1 protein that's what we're talking about next the researchers inserted the magneto dna sequence into the genome of a virus we'll enter the overlap of the research of langer and lieber and the whole thing then they injected the virus into the brains of mice targeting the 
the entheogenal cortex. Using microelectrodes, they then showed that applying a magnetic field to the brain of slices activated magneto so the cells produce nerve impulses. To determine whether magneto can be used to manipulate neuronal activity in live animals, they injected magneto into zebrafish larvae, targeting neural neurons in the trunk and tail that normally control an escape response. They then placed the zebrafish larvae into a specially built magnetized aquarium and found that exposure to a magnetic field induced coiling maneuvers similar to those that occurred during escape response. So they literally created movement in a living creature. Oh, I had something over here. Yeah. I want to include that I just thought of that I think is important. I was going to come back to later. This is interesting to me. So as we're talking about this, yesterday, uh, two days ago, the Defender put this out. Military's expanded role in 5G could lead to mass data collection, tracking, and monitoring of U.S. citizens. Not to say that I know that there's necessarily a connection here, but think about that. If what they know, if they what they effectively need is some sort of you kind of magnetized aquarium, well, what does this feel like? Not necessarily magnetic, necessarily, but we're still talking about the idea of the, of the possibility, whether magnetism or the idea of just of, what's the right word to use here? Because there's a lot of different ways we could talk about 5G specifically, but just the idea of energy and how this one of the radio waves, this, there's a lot of different angles to this you can read. They're talking about all of it. So maybe it's about literally this kind of overlap. But it says in one final experiment, the researchers injected magneto into the the stratium of freely behaving mice, a deep brain structure containing dopamine producing neurons that are involved in reward and motivation, and then place the animals into an apparatus split into magnetized and non-magnetized sections. Mice expressing magneto spent far more time in the magnetized areas. Guys, this is literally what we're talking about. I know not whether that's what is happening with those or not is I, it's not for me to say, but it's possible. It's possible, and it's obviously concerning when you know that this could be turned into this or used this way or utilized this way. Previous attempts using magnets to control neural activity needed multiple components, but, but injecting magnetic particles, injecting a virus that expresses a heat-sensitive channel, well, it worked. The problem with having a multi-component system is there's too much room for each individual break, piece to break down, right? Through the idea, and don't forget the same point with the injection of the mesh the Lieber-Langer discussion, the idea of bio-surveillance, bio all of this stuff overlaps. This, this system is a single elegant virus that can be ejected anywhere in the brain, which makes it technically easier and less likely for moving bells and whistles to break down. Magnogenetics is therefore an important addition to neuroscientist toolbox, which will undoubtedly be developed further. Then we can step one more year forward, flipping a switch inside the head. April 2017. Well, it says, ready your tinfoil hats. Mind control is not as far-fetched an idea as it may seem. Jeffrey M. Friedman's laboratory, it happens all the time. Through the subject, though the subjects are mice, not people. Friedman and his colleagues develop have demonstrated a radio-operated remote control for the appetite and glucose metabolism of mice, a sophisticated technique to wirelessly alter neurons in the animal's brains. At the flick of a switch, they're able to make mice hungry. Or suppress their appetite while the mice go about their lives normally. So essentially you could kill somebody with this. And that's the point has been working on a technique for several years. An ideal approach they reasoned would be a non-invasive, non-damaging as possible. 
Brain, brain, deep brain sim stimulation. A third strategy was using drugs to activate genetically modified cells bred into mice. It's just, it's just crazy. See this part by engineering the cells to make them receptive to radio waves or magnetic fields. Right there. I try to cut to the chase. There's a lot to read in this, but it says the researcher's first challenge was to find something in a neuron that could serve as an antenna to detect the incoming radio signal or magnetic field. The logical choice was ferritin, a protein that stores iron in cells like a balloon, like particles, just a dozen nanometers wide. Iron is essential to cells, but can also be toxic. So it is sequestering a, in ferritin particles until it is needed. Each ferritin particle carries with it thousands of grains of iron that wiggle around in response to a radio signal and shift with a line and a line when immersed with a magnetic field. So this was the perfect choice for them to give more into the bodies of these animals so they could be controlled. They realized they could use genetically engineered virus to create doorways into neurons, outer membrane. That's Lieber's work. If they could then somehow attach each door to a ferritin particle, they reasoned, they might be able to wiggle the ferritin enough to jostle the door open. The door we choose is called TRPV1. Once activated, the ions would flow into the cell and trigger a neuron to fire, creating you to do things that you might not even realize you're being triggered to do. Think about this in the context of what we see in the world today. It's just incredible to me. So, finally, let's not forget that in December 2021, in the midst of all of this, preclinical studies support the Army's pan-coronavirus vaccine development strategy. It says a series of recently published preclinical studies. Make sure this, hold on. That shouldn't have refreshed. I'm just. Nah, whatever. I don't want to waste time. A series of recently published preclinical studies results show that the spike ferritin nanoparticle COVID-19 vaccine developed by researchers at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research not only elicits potent immune response, but may also provide broad protection against SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern, as well as other coronaviruses. So literally what they're working on elsewhere. Why isn't this talked about? They tell you this works. The point is, it wasn't just ferritin or nanoparticles. It was specifically spike protein, ferritin, nanoparticles. They were, this is the the rare, however you would say that, WRAIR's Emerging Infectious Disease Branch developed an SPFN nanoparticle vaccine based on a ferritin platform. Guys, this is what we're talking about. As part of a forward-thinking pan-SARS strategy, this is exactly the same thing. Now being applied in general broad ways to universal flu vaccines. My God, I just think it could not be more clear. Overall, these things are dangerous. They seem to be chosen to be dangerous or rather just be that they don't, they don't care that it's all about experimentation to find out how they can make this thing work at, at your expense. But to finish, again, they're telling you this. The new science of CRISPR, how gene editing tech is about to change food in some weird ominous way, your children, and vaccine forever. Whether you like it or not. As I said, I guess the illusion of our involvement is just no longer necessary. And don't forget, 
Lou Rockwell just put, actually specifically Joseph Mercola put out an article about this. What safety studies have been done on the mRNA swine vaccines? You know, the ones that have been being used since 2018, even though they just lied about that. Well, none. What they did is they actually tested this platform, Sequivity, and what they actually tested was one initial isolate. But what they do is they use the platform to make new ones based on what they need. So what they're proving to you is they've already been doing is they don't ever need an isolate if it's even there. They have, they arguably go, oh, well, tested this and it's safe and whatever. But then they ask for something new and they make it based on the same platform, the same step. They take a genetic sequence and they push it into the next thing. Pathogen collected, sent to a lab. The gene of interest is sequenced and sent to electronically. So the point is they never have it. They could be wrong in their sequencing. It doesn't even have to be there. The synthetic version of the gene is synthesized and inserted into the platform. So let's just even say they did sequence it right. The point is they're using the platform based on something they originally worked with. So they haven't ever tested any of it. Then they they stick this in a bunch of animals that then end up in your food, as your food. It's the same thing. It's the same point of the mRNA platform that they're always been talking about. This is the, what you're looking at. Two days after they got the sequence, they were already making this and it's never changed. Other than the additional stuff, bivalent and so on. Very clear. Let's see if this takes forever to load, but this is important to point out as well. The Wayback Machine version of what they were telling you is their platform. It's the same point, right? It's saying they have a broad potential for mRNA science. We set up to create an mRNA technology platform that functions very much like an operating system on a computer. And it's designed so that it can plug and play interchangeably with different programs. In our case, the program or app is our drug and the unique mRNA sequence that codes for the protein. It's very clear. They do not ever need anything other than computerized sequences. So at what point do they just stop needing anything else? Or probably already there. And last quick point, Associated Press put this out. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch called emergency measures taken during COVID crisis that killed more than one million Americans, perhaps the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country, which I agree with. But do you take this as him saying that the emergency measures taken during COVID that killed that? So the emergency measures killed one million people or that the COVID crisis killed more than one? I think it's the, the, the former. As Sasha Latipova says, yeah, correct for once. It was the emergency measures that killed 1 million people. Either way, you let you take this. The point is he's now saying that it was wrong. We know that it was wrong. But the reality is it was the measures, by and large, that actually killed people. And that was repackaged, just like everything else we're now seeing. Here we have former CBC reporter testifying at the National Citizens Inquiry in Ottawa, saying, as a public broadcaster, you'd expect us to be telling you the truth. And we stopped doing that. She said the rules seem to change overnight. But apparently now that she's standing up and saying what she's not supposed to say, well, you know what's going to happen, right? Where is that? <laughs> Suddenly she's not an expert anymore because she said the wrong thing. So you're no longer part of the team. So you're no longer worth trusting and you're debunked. So that means you're lying. <laughs> it's just very sad. But thank you for taking the time to be here today, as always, and asking questions, sharing information with people that need to see it. We will never stop because the truth, the, 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 the process of seeking truth is never ending. It's like the scientific method. It is just simply an evolving process. And we, it, this is the reality, guys. And that's why we need to remain objective because things develop, new information comes along, and we have to fold it in and, and entertain possibilities. 
And that's exactly the opposite of what a lot of is happening today from the government. Obviously, you're supposed to trust the narrative. That's it. But you also have a lot of these dividing, you know, we talked about it a lot with 9-11, right? Doesn't mean these points aren't important, but you end up having people that find these wedge issues and make it a defining point, which maybe it is, but in the process, box out people that may just have questions. We're seeing that happen everywhere today. And I know some of it is dishonest. So it's important to be objective and stand back and entertain these possibilities, even if that means you think you're you're considering through something that you seem to think is not real. If we box out part of this conversation, if we box out people that have a different opinion and just pretend that if they have a different opinion, therefore they are a shill or however that works, you, I guarantee you, you will reach things that are untrue. Simple as that. So continue to be objective and ask questions of everything, including what you believe. The only way to do this. I love you all. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Well, so you believe that the COVID vaccine is not necessary? I think it's downright dangerous. And I warn you, if you go along these lines, you are going to go to your doom.